nature gave man superior strength, women were bestowed pathological cunning. Unfortunately, what was granted to be used as a means of defense is often in practice used for anything but. Infantile as they are, women are ill-equipped to handle power, and that which is born out of the insecurity that a man may do her wrong turns into an exploitative, predatory misuse of power that fuels grandiose narcissism and thus masculinizes her. The aforementioned relationships between the different aspects of the female psyche do not explain it in its entirety, but nonetheless should accurately depict its root and core. Number four, the role of rationalization and sophistry. In contrast to the prior section, this section will be quite short, as many of the mechanisms relevant to this behavior are aptly described in my distillation of solipsism. While solipsism requires greater explanation because of its breadth as something she is, rationalization requires less explanation because it's merely something she does. Rationalization is the grand act of seeking justification or explanation for something that has occurred in order to flatter or benefit the person who performed the behavior. It is not an honest attempt to understand what causes a behavior. Women often do not understand why they feel what they feel, because rationally verbalizing primal impulses is difficult, if not impossible. She cannot acknowledge that she doesn't even know why she said or did something, as she'll look stupid. So to save face, she will come up with persuasive nonsense to reconcile the irrationality of her behavior with the aestheticism of something that sounds convincing. To simplify, she will find something that sounds reasonable to explain her behavior, regardless of whether this is the true cause of said behavior. As long as it makes her look and feel good, it is a sufficient rationalization that serves the purpose she needs it to. Women are far less concerned with communicating the truth about themselves than they are maintaining an acceptable image. Again, this is why it's folly to ask women about women. They're less interested, capable, and incentivized to understand themselves than men are. Number five, in closing. Here before you lies just a few of the aspects inherent to the operating system of female psychology. It is incomplete, as a complete treatise on the topic is not merely substantial in depth, but likewise a breadth. Time permitting, it is my desire to pen a follow-up piece that details other aspects inherent to female nature, linking them in with the aspects previously described in order to create a coherent framework. Womanly Duplicity and Its Constituent Parts Dissimulation is innate in women, and almost as characteristic of the very stupid as of the clever. Arthur Schopenhauer Number 1. The Paradox of Cunning Naivety Why are women so manipulative? Know that, firstly, in matters of people, manipulation is as natural to a woman as stinging is to a scorpion. Woman herself needs no education in wielding her sexual powers to exert undue influence on man, for nature has equipped man to covet her sexuality, and woman herself to abuse it. This intersexual blend of Machiavellianism is thus as automatic as it is instinctive. It is less so a product of conscious higher thinking, and more so an inevitability of the selection pressures that bred her. From here we discover a curiously enigmatic piece of the feminine puzzle, one that leaves many a man dumbfounded in its seemingly paradoxical juxtaposition. If we are to presuppose that woman is intrinsically cunning, then how can we simultaneously assert her propensity for fantastical gullibility? If women are so manipulative, 
Why is it that they are more susceptible to propaganda and given to believe more fervently in the supernatural, the religious, and other such unsubstantiable things? After all, the cunning are known not for their epitomization of gullibility, but for their deficit of it. So if they are to be mutually exclusive, should one not preclude the other? And if so, how can she be cunning if she is likewise gullible? It is my contention that in neither man nor woman is gullibility mutually exclusive from cunning, and I shall endeavor to explain why this is henceforth. As I alluded previously, a woman's cunning is a byproduct of her instinct, not a premeditated affair. Her ability to seduce is more nature than it is nurture. Her manipulations no more than mechanisms of her biological wiring than they are conscious exertions. Her spasmodic capriciousness, penchant for blame-shifting, and affinity to the plausibly deniable are evolutionarily adapted survival traits, as is her propensity for rationalization and its subsequent supplantation of her reason. And yet the very capacity for rationalization that makes her manipulation so powerful is the very thing which confers her gullibility in matters of the esoteric and abstract. Effectively, her ability to rationalize makes her most effective in the manipulation of people, but the very deficit of reason such rationalization causes is what leads to her gullibility in the abstract. As an additional factor, one must note women's unconditional loyalty to authority. She is obedient in much the way a child is, and it is this obedience which makes her prone to foolishness. If a person of repute is to tell her something, she will evaluate the thing based on the importance of the person who told her it, rather than dissect the elements of what she was told. It is in this way that lesbianic upper-class women duped the common woman into working, by playing on the innate victim complex characteristic of woman's infantile narcissism, they were able to convince her that labor was a freedom women were denied, rather than a burden from which they were saved. Womankind subsequently rationalized away her position of relative comfort unencumbered by the harshnesses of labor, and bought into the idea she was born into an oppressed class. As such, it becomes quite clear. Interpersonally, she is cunning, but ideologically, she is the very fool she manipulates relationally. Be she cunning, mindfully or instinctually, she is innately predisposed to a degree of cunning one way or the other. This is not to suggest that women are incapable of consciously premeditating their manipulations, for such a thing is possible if not commonplace, but rather it is a testament to the baseline of duplicity present in women even when conscious effort is absent. Even then, I make this distinction only to emphasize the intrinsicality with which cunning exists in women. I by no means believe the typical woman lacks either the interest or inclination to more mindfully develop the instincts that nature bestowed her. Likewise, it is in tangential relevance to this, I find it important to note that women's profound interest in and domination of academic psychology is no more than an effect of her intrinsic Machiavellian propensity. Women who are instinctively cunning, rather than mindfully cunning, will often succumb to gullibility in spite of themselves. For you see, their instincts equip them solely to seduce and petition man, not to engage in the strategization of complex, abstract mental work. Women with a flair for the strategic are either learned or dark triad, and are therefore by definition outliers. The base of the female population's Machiavellian instincts scantly extends beyond the interpersonal and the intersexual. 
And so when it comes to things outside of this arena, she is as naive as the dictation of her emotions and the deficit of her reason allows. Combine this deficit in logic with her evolutionary propensity to rationalize away the undesirable, and the strength of her need to believe is laid bare. Number two, the double-edged sword of rationalization. The very thing that makes her manipulation so notoriously effective is the same thing that leads her to be so easily misled, her tendency to rationalize rather than reason. Whilst the average woman is more manipulating than the average man, she is likewise more manipulable than him. Where the typical woman is manipulating in relationships but manipulable in matters of reality, the average man is manipulable in relationships and more finely astute of the abstract. The gift of reason that lends a man his astuteness in matters of reality is thus absent in his estimation of women. The deficit of reason experienced by women abstractly is equivalent to the deficit of cunning man experiences intersexually. In a relationship, man is behaviorally idealistic, while she is behaviorally pragmatic. Although one should not note that such a thing does not prevent her from amassing unrealistic expectations of what being a man should consist of in relation to her self-interest. Where beauty is the primary cornerstone of feminine power, the capacity for pronounced rationalization is its secondary cornerstone. Where a man's reason prohibits him from employing the mental gymnastics necessary to effectively execute a manipulation, a woman faces no such obstacle. Sanity as we think of it is an assessment of one's ability to demonstrate cogency in their methods and consistency in their beliefs. Women are hard-pressed to demonstrate either, which is why we often think of them as crazy. One should not also forget that womankind has been evolutionarily equipped to rationalize the undesirable through her maternal line's history as a spoil of war. Before civilization legislated against and effectively nullified the power of man's physical strength, a woman's ability to deceive man was her only defense against his encroachments. Number three, her deficit of loyalty. Where traditional masculinity is rigid, based on systems of honor and loyalty, and reliant on force to punish transgressions of these, femininity has no such concerns, and is therefore more fluid in the fickleness of its alliances. Where men want their team to win, women simply want to be on the winning team. The men who are similar to women in this way tend to be dark triad in their personality makeup. Women's inherent amorality leaves her capable of showing loyalty to whoever exerts the most dominance over her. A woman never completely rules out betrayal, for women are creatures of opportunity. Instead, she hedges her bets by playing both sides and betraying as is financially or emotionally necessary. Betrayal is the spark that ignites the match when a woman moves on and adapts herself to a new man in the face of what she deemed to be insufficiency in the previous. Loyalty is symptomatic of honor, an inherently masculine behavior. Don't believe me? Look at the divorce rates. The majority of divorces are initiated by women, a true testament to their disloyalty. Likewise, men report a light switch effect when breaking up with a woman, a 180-degree change in her personality as she effortlessly gets over him, whilst he continues to pine for her. When a rival tribe would kidnap a woman, her ability to rationalize was the only thing that allowed her to cope, adapt, and continue to lead a rewarding and prosperous life. I believe it is this evolutionary history that is the foundation of women's intrinsic loyalty deficits. 
Women who were inferior rationalizers would have expressed loyalty to their birth tribe in the presence of their captors, consequently causing themselves inordinate grief. Inevitably, such women would have been culled to the point where only women with a more fluid sense of loyalty would survive such a prevalence of kidnapping. Henceforth, selecting for women who were loyal to the powerful and disloyal to the weak, the losses and gains of power imitating the ebbs and flows in her retraction and pledging of loyalty. Where men adopt their own principles, women adopt the principles of the most powerful people in their lives. Where men fight enemy tribes and die in war, women fall in love with their captors, using their innate capacity for cunning to completely remold themselves and even thrive, a feat even the most objectively talented man would be hard-pressed to perform. Number four, on the duplicity of beauty. Nature has armed womankind with dissimulation and aesthetic appeal, in which the latter vastly complements and lends itself to the former. Beauty is the fulcrum on which many of successful deception is predicated, for its inviting allure baits with desire, whilst falsely associating itself with virtue. To enhance one's beauty is therefore to augment one's influence, to appear more noble, more capable, and therefore more trustworthy. Women know this intuitively. Beauty is not only disarming, but enticing. Its presence aiding in the signaling of women's most favored illusion, innocence. Man's most foolish visceralism is his propensity to conflate the beautiful with the virtuous. For in doing so, he invariably sees woman for who he'd like her to be, rather than for who she is. It is this flaw of instinct in which man perceives virtue as an attendant characteristic of beauty that he inflicts on himself the self-detriment of intersexual naivety. The duplicity of beauty is predicated on a presumption of innocence that only women and children enjoy, for beauty connotes its virtue through an aesthetic of infantilism. As Leo Tolstoy rather famously said, it is amazing how complete is the delusion that beauty is goodness. Beauty is as such feminine rather than masculine in its aesthetic for handsomeness neither connotes nor confers onto its possessor the same illusion of virtue that beauty does. Handsomeness lacks the visual childlike innocent signatory of beauty that leads the observer to infer virtue. Effectively, the visual cues that lead us to believe in the innocence of children is the exact mechanism from which women's beauty takes a degree of its power. That degree, pertaining to the conflation of beauty with virtue, and the presumption of innocence that results from it, rather than woman's sexual power, per se. This phenomena alone serves as further proof of women's immaturity relative to man. If further proof were even necessary, greater neoteny is a biological marker of lesser maturity. In summary of this section's thought, I leave you with this concluding statement. Her first concern is her appearance. Her second concern, her cunning. But both serve the same ends. Number five, in closing, relevant reading. Woman's desire to remain blameless forever and always plays a significant role in her desire to cultivate an innocent visage. Defensively, a woman's primary method of manipulation is her presumption of innocence. Offensively, it is the seductiveness of her physicality. Both rely on her beauty, the prior to a mere lesser degree than the latter. The weaponization of sex the falsification of tears, the feigning of innocence, and the allergy to blame. Know the tools of womanly deception and recognize them for what they are when they rear their ugly heads. And remember, 
I do not convey such displeasurable truths in order to dissuade you from interacting with women, but rather so that you may act with shrewdness when you do interact with them. How Women Argue No sensible man ever engages, unprepared, in a fencing match of words with a woman. Wilkie Collins The fundamental difference in what women say they want and what they actually want is a product of the notion that women tend to exercise rationalization, not reason in and of itself. Most women have extremely weak reasoning. You'll notice in arguments with them that they will try to attack the credibility of your logic to try and make themselves look better. This is the classic, I can't beat the competition, so I'll try to make the competition less effective strategy that women employ on a grand scale with ideas like fat acceptance, but applied on a micro scale in their interactions on a one-to-one -one basis. Questioning a man's logic and credibility is a way a woman essentially brings a man down to her level of absurdity. There comes a line of questioning so invasive, so interrogative, and so unreasonable that a man, feeling like he is on the defense, will yield his logic to his sense of frustration. And then the woman, who deliberately and calculatingly imposed this form of mental tyranny in her sense of outrage, will then use this frustration as a weapon against the man to further reduce his credibility by pointing out quite proudly that he is in fact no more logical than she. Women will hold you to your logic, as it forces you to take responsibility for things they do not wish to. But they are bound by no such logic themselves because they have no prevailing internal dialogue that is actually based on logic. At best, they tend to have segmented ideas based on emotional thought layered with rationalization that works to present a veneer of intellectual credibility, which is later necessary for the purpose of saving face. What women are doing here is exploiting the nature of logic and the sense of duty to the truth which is inherent within it. They make you feel bad by making you feel like you violate your own sense of duty to the truth, while simultaneously feeling no such duty themselves. This gives them an edge in verbal combat, as once you are emotionally compromised within your own frame of reference, questioning your own sense of logic due to your emotionally provoked slip-up, they can then exploit this momentary weakness to dominate the agenda. They do whatever they do, and then worry about making themselves look good later on. Unemotional reason does not permeate the thought process beforehand. Satiating the need caused by the desires of their current emotional state is of the utmost importance to them. Essentially, they care more about feeding their emotional state more than they care about the tenets of objective logic. Emotional preference beats rational preference for them almost every time as much as they hate the fact this makes them seem less credible than men, and thus to some extent inferior. This is practically a universal truth that not even government-imposed equality has managed to rectify. Women are not held any more accountable for their actions now than they were pre-feminism. You only need to look at sentences handed out by the judiciary for confirmation of this. When you're inherently unreasonable, you are prone to making mistakes. Making mistakes makes you look bad. Looking bad is bad for your status. This is why women are good at saving face and maintaining a reputation while simultaneously practicing poor reasoning ability. This is where manipulation comes into play. You'll find that women are very good at spinning things, 
far more so than your average man is. They'll talk to you, they'll hold you to your words and get you on the defense, constantly questioning you, but they'll ignore any criticisms directed at them, as if to say with the unspoken word that your concerns or notice of their irrationalism is unworthy of validation. Then they use your own words against you, using underhanded and subtle spin to make you look like an idiot. The more you put into an argument with a woman, the more likely you are to lose with her, because she will act most deviously in sabotaging your reputation while she layers hers. To a woman, an argument is not usually an exchange of information between one person and another where, despite opposition, ideas can be exchanged and information learnt. To a woman, an argument is a battleground for pushing an agenda. And reputation maintenance always comprises part of that agenda. There's nothing more and nothing less to the nature of their argumentation. This is why typically they cannot be held as accountable, and thus even remotely equal to men, due to an absence of credibility. They demonstrate repeatedly that their mental faculty is averse to claiming responsibility via honest, transparent discourse. Even when they are in positions of power, which require by nature of the job description that they be held completely and utterly accountable, they still demonstrate reluctance to give up plausible deniability and be forced into a position. Analyze any female bosses in the workplace you've had to draw a personal inference if you need so. This desire for plausible deniability is what creates their blame-shifting nature and makes them, happily to themselves, not only unaccountable, but to their simultaneous dismay, incredible, not credible as a group of people. Women will always move the fixation of the analytical microscope from themselves onto the opponent in their defiant acts of emotion-fueled verbal sparring. This is how they defend themselves. They are wholly incapable of standing up to scrutiny on a logical level, due to the lack of faculty previously explained. And this is thus why they do everything in their power to remain out of the spotlight shaming and scapegoating others in place of being a target of scrutiny themselves. As long as, it's not my fault, and I don't look bad, she doesn't care. Despite the common woman's indignation at being deemed illogical, or at least in terms of mental faculty, far less capable of logical reasoning than man himself, women in all their self-honesty beyond their hubris and ego maintenance do in fact realize that men are the more logical party. How is this, you ask? Something I have observed in my arguments with women over time is a tendency for them to say that you claim women are illogical, but you've just been illogical yourself. Again, as mentioned earlier, this is a device used to try to bring you down whilst they bring themselves up. It's the credibility game of making you seem less credible by destroying the appearance of your advantage, your logic, to onlookers. However, the irony here is that such statements are often made after the woman in question has been incredibly irrational herself. However, if you as a man are to make one wrong step, to make one statement that isn't totally sound in logic, you are immediately held at gunpoint, and this one faux pas in comparison to her long list of logical mistakes is held up as an example of just how illogical you as a man are. How is this women admitting that they believe men to be more logical than themselves, I hear you ask? Well, as usual, they're communicating it via the subtext, not with words. 
They're holding men to a standard where even one sentence or idea uttered illogically is immediately picked up on and condemned. Thus, they have the ability to identify irrationalism, yet ironically, they perpetuate their own irrationalism as gospel. They're holding themselves to a lower standard of logical accountability than they do the male party. Got you there, ladies. A man is condemned for being illogical, and immediately compared to a woman for being so. Yet the same woman who draws this comparison is the same woman who will try to condemn you to save face using all the most argumentatively illogical Machiavellian tactics in the book. Women know they are illogical. They know they are not fair to you in discourse. They push all your buttons and drive you crazy with their irrationalism. And quite simply, they don't care as long as it fulfills their agenda. They are undeniably selfish and hold commitment to their personal needs higher among their list of personal priorities than the diction of intellectualism. The only thing they care about is feeling like they're right and getting their ego stroked, not actually discovering that little-known thing we value called the truth. Solipsism does not need truth. Equally accountable standards of logic applied to both genders, however, does need truth, as the truth is objective. The truth has the potency to be harmful to solipsism and the female sense of well-being. And therefore, typically, the truth is an adversary of the female, only an ally when she needs it to make someone else appear weak. What they're doing, despite their lack of intellectual integrity, is making themselves look more credible than the straight-talking logical party, which is typically the man, so that when it comes to saving face, they win the game of appearing more sophisticated. As sophistication carries a grace of validity and credibility to it, this is what they are mostly concerned with in the perpetuation of their thoughts. Women care about winning arguments, not about being right, per se. To a woman, being right is using whatever underhanded tactic is required to get her own way and come out of the conflict favorably. Being right is not obeying the laws of logical objectivism, but spinning other people's logic to make her look better than them whilst offering up some weak arguments herself just to get the ball rolling. There are a few ways that they can put spin on the argumentation at hand. One of them is to shame you. By shaming you, they can make you react emotionally. Once you react emotionally, you've lost. They will then make a theatrical example out of your show of emotion and use it to condemn you. Another way they put spin on things, one they favor greatly, is to play the victim. All of a sudden, all the verbosity of being equal turns into, I'm just a girl and you're being mean. Water tears get worked, and everyone looks at you like you're the asshole. The fucked up thing is you will probably even feel like an asshole too, even though you're in the right. Voila, she gets her own way, and that's all she wanted to begin with. There is no low too low for womankind to steep to if it means she gets her own way and secures her interests. Women are very egotistical, because ego, like everything, is composed of emotions. And emotions are that much more de facto dominant in women than they are in men. Next time you argue with a woman, remember the agenda at hand is to appear the most credible and maintain a superior reputation in juxtaposition to your own. If she tries to bait you into reacting emotionally, and she will, she is dependent on your anger to have a chance of beating you to a pulp with your own words. 
do not take her seriously and just laugh off her words. Because really, they're nothing more than baseless Machiavellian nonsense that will drive you to insanity should you take such words seriously and attempt to engage them at face value. Women of substance are made, not born. The average woman has typically little to offer of value to a man other than her body. Some women are even self-aware enough to realize this, and so they monopolize the fact by narcissistically spending all their time trying to look good, accentuating the only real asset that they have in order to gain power by becoming dominant in the realm of superficiality. However, in words uttered by the mouth, very few women will actually admit they are nothing other than a glorified excuse of a series of fuckholes, because such dehumanization harms their ego, damaging the core of who they are, the outward persona that they build up around themselves, and the very narcissism they look to reinforce to feed this persona via external social validation. Now, cue a tirade of dopamine hits from filtered Instagram selfies, Facebook likes, and her inability to put down a smartphone, combined with a rigorous routine of careful makeup application and carefully selected clothing choices. Patrice O'Neill demonstrated it best when he asked an entire crowd of women what they would do to keep their man if he was thinking of leaving them and they didn't have a vagina. Most of them said they would blow him or let him stick it in their ass. This was a covert test to see if women would objectify themselves or not. Learning to cook better or engaging in hobbies and activities close to their man's heart were non-sexual options, among others, which were not the typical go-to response of his audience. This example aside, women seem to objectify themselves, but don't have the clarity of mind, neither the narcissistic inclination to admit as such. Certainly, cognitive dissonance is at play. They use their sexuality to get what they want via a process of strategic self-objectification, while simultaneously possessing sentience and thus agency. Patrice had to deceive the women in his audience with a little game in order to get the truth out of them. And yes, surely a comedy gig is not the best place to have a rational discussion about such things, but nevertheless, the measure of validity which can be taken from such an anecdote is quite eye-opening. Having any negative opinion about woman, no matter how well-justified or well-reasoned it may be, is automatically misogynistic in the eyes of women. You not only harm their egos by being critical of their group collective, as they are of men, but their proclivity to be reactionary married to an addiction to emotional input means they become lost in the indignation and the wrath that follows from it, rather than attempt to critically deduce truths from the logic which you posit. In short, they do not respect logic and truth in the way that men do. They do not prioritize these things above everything else. No, they respect feelings above all else. And it is feelings which are of the utmost priority to womankind. Making women feel bad due to criticism is in of itself a misogynistic act as far as a woman is concerned, because she does not like the negatively charged aspect of the turbulence you bring to her emotional whirlwind. Like Patrice would, if you use humor, you can get women to speak the truth. The delivery matters far more than the content when interacting with a woman. Less straight talk, more power talk. When looking around at the quality of modern-day women, the majority would be considered by men to be utterly disappointing long-term material. Their traits, their composure, and their very nature are all entirely questionable, if not downright undesirable. 
Society downplays, justifies, and otherwise ignores the weaknesses of women with cultural ignorance that mislabels objective criticism as misogyny, whilst it simultaneously and quite ironically misrepresents women in a positive light by projecting all these unsubstantiated idealistic qualities onto them, claiming that such qualities are fundamentally innate merits of the universal female identity. In all its unfounded perversity, this baseless bullshit is a type of religion. Everyone believes blindly in the goodness of women because they've been raised to do so, contrary to the behavior that women around them are actually engaging in on a daily basis. Even when said behavior is found to be bad, it is always disregarded due to some baseless belief in female sanctity, which in reality is nothing more than an ideal, a projection, not a universal truth. It is this unfairly realistic deception, this hallucinogenic depiction of womankind that is presented to women, which leads men who begin to learn what women are like in nature to feel disillusioned and disenchanted. They feel this way because what they are taught to believe about women from a young age is far removed from who they really are. Whilst women are flattered by the bullshit pandering that they are sugar and spice and everything nice, men are crushed by the fact that they are indeed not so. In comparison to all the hopes and dreams men have been fed to expect from women, it's this perverse, Disney-funded fantasy that makes men everywhere feel duped, let down, and even misanthropic when they find themselves ill-equipped to cope with the letdown which is the modern-day woman. Those living in today's Anglosphere and Western European civilizations should typically expect very little of women. So few are worthy of anything more than a rumble in the hay simply because they haven't been raised right. Cue the malignancy of the single mother epidemic and the erosion of conducive moral, religious, and family values here. Even good company and banter with such women tends to be a rarity, as quite a many of them lack the ability to be mentally stimulating on a conversational level. Occasionally, you may find yourself pleasantly surprised and in such a circumstance. Run the risk of falling very hard for the woman in question, as in comparison to her brethren, she will shine out like a lighthouse in a sea of drudgery with imposing prominence. However, no matter her beneficial difference, she is a woman like any other. She has the same psychological, and most importantly, emotional needs, and as such will run all the usual shit tests, making the same type of demands that the legions of broken women will. The question you will find yourself asking, though, is, is this one worth it? For those who decide, yes, such a woman is worth it, and are in the right phase of their life to do so, you have a project on your hands, one that will require much mental investment. If you want yourself a desirable woman, you will have to cultivate femininity and desirability into her yourself if you deem she has the necessary raw material to become a desirable lady worthy of raising a family with, wife material. Such is the inherent focus of the Red Pill Woman Project. Red Pill Women are women on a quest to be wife or mother material to the perception of a man. They are works in progress, the counterpart to the Red Pill philosophy. Essentially, they are guided by a social network of traditionally-minded matriarchs, and if in a serious relationship, the desires and authority of the man she has pledged her allegiance to. For those of us who have neither the time nor the inclination to practice the patience required to effectively create our own red pill woman, indulging in the idea of red pill women is not an option for us. 
Women of all kinds require vast reservoirs of patience and love, as it is the basis of their erratic emotionalism, which leads them to be ever-demanding. Heed me when I say that all red pill women are trained by men. They are not magically born out of the womb. A unicorn is merely a high-quality red pill woman raised, cultivated, and overseen by men of value, integrity, and intelligence. Whether that man is her father or, later on, a serious boyfriend, she is trained and maintained by men to be a quality woman. To an extent, she is trained by her mother also, who respects the strength of an authoritarian man and imparts the ideas of the father onto her daughter by proxy. But a mother who was unable to secure a strong man, in her bitterness and ineptitude, will typically not pass on conducive moral and sexual values that will lead to romantic success for her daughter. After all, she cannot do for her daughter what she was unable to obtain for herself. Often, a woman who is of quality from a young age, non-promiscuous, good-natured, talented, intelligent, humorous, not hateful of men, and emotionally stable, is a woman who has had a good relationship with her father. Her father, having been what, for a lack of a better term, is considered an alpha male, instilling positive traits into her psyche with a firm, loving hand, raising her to respect men and accommodate them in the social contract, rather than hold them in contempt and challenge them as adversaries like mainstream society would indoctrinate. It is the job of the man who commits to such a woman romantically to then maintain the legacy that her father left. Good girls will turn bad in the absence of a strong male figure. For it is women's emotional transient nature which causes them to stray from the path of romantic success. It is woman's emotional nature, whether she consciously desires it or not, that necessitates her need for strong, trustworthy leadership so that she may absolve herself of responsibility in her inevitable moments of weakness. She wants someone to lean on, but fears that the dissolution of that responsibility will be abused. A connection of trust to a powerful man is what women crave. In essence, this is why women tend to look for men who were like their fathers. They seek dominance in which they can trust, and it is this dominance which allows them to remain emotionally stable offloading their neuroticism onto the stoicism of the man that they pair with. Good women are not only made by men, but must also be maintained by men. In the absence of such leadership, women take on detrimental qualities in the name of freedom, being poor leaders themselves due to the erraticism of emotionalism, and in the absence of authority, typically a strong patriarch and an equally traditional matriarch, they become feral and pursue self-destruction always chasing the nearest perceivable emotional high rather than planning ahead for the days where the temporary adrenaline-filled joyful experience that short-term liaisons provide are no longer available to them as their sexual appeal evaporates with age, leaving them without legacy and family with a firm foot in spinsterhood. Essentially, all women have daddy issues. No, I'm not going to qualify that as most or some, but forthrightly tell you all. If he was a good father, she wants a serious relationship with a man who was like her father, strong, compassionate, worldly, a badass, but with a soft spot unique to her. Women love to feel special. In fact, they crave it. If she had a good father, as a man looking to date such a woman, a woman with a good father, your life has already been made infinitely easier by his diligence. He has already raised an appealing woman, 
and then left the foundations in place to cultivate this valuable raw material into a long-term partner, a mother, and a wife. However, the onus is on you to be strong enough to maintain the status quo. Such a woman will not respect weakness, and thus will not follow the lead of a man who is too inept to take charge. Such a woman will hold you to the standards set by her father, and as such, will compare you both in starkness. If her father was absent or otherwise a letdown, she wants her boyfriend to be everything he wasn't. Her mind has filled in the blanks with what he should have been. Now, some of that, of course, will be complete fantastical bullshit. What she will want in this scenario is for a man to essentially fill the emotional void the lack of a father figure left her with. Whilst perversely and simultaneity, she will find it hard to trust men due to her sense of abandonment. Maintaining a healthy, loving, and conducive relationship with such a woman will be exceptionally difficult. She will effectively be both her own, as well as your own, worst enemy. Actively sabotaging everything you're trying to build, with all the irrationality of her delinquency manifesting itself in the present day as morbid insecurity. This is why women with poor relationships with their fathers are a massive red flag. When eyeing up a woman for a prospective long-term romantic engagement, find out what her relationship with her father's like. The absence of a father or a negative relationship with her father are massive red flags, as she is already set up to be a poor romantic prospect, mainly due to how she was, or wasn't, raised. Single mothers quite simply, are inept to raise quality children single-handedly. The presence of a weak father is better than nothing, but typically you want her to have had a father who was a patriarch, a dominant man who taught her discipline so that her base schematic of what men should be like is healthy and is informed from unhealthy feminist stereotypes and the ramblings of a bitter and romantically unsuccessful single mother. Still, even the presence of a patriarch in a young girl's life isn't always enough to ensure a quality woman, as the prevailing socially engineered cultural forces around her proactively do their utmost to undermine the will and intent that her father's best interests have for her. Red pill women are not unicorns. They are women capable of curbing their instincts whilst using logic to be more desirable in an effort to secure provisioning in their old age. Effectively, they're investing in the long game and have been made self-aware enough to realize that being a slut, getting by on her sexuality and youth, is not a gravy train that's going to last forever. There are women who will compromise and work with a man who is equally strong enough and patient enough to deal with them. Everything is a compromise with women. Whether she's a cunt, has BPD, is unintelligent, or is as high caliber and well-cultivated as an emotionally stable and feminine red pill woman, the inherent difference between masculine and feminine nature leads to a process of unending compromise. No matter the woman, she will test your patience. This is just women, full stop. Not got a lot of patience? Women are going to just piss you the hell off then. It does help, however, when a woman can offset this inherently annoying trait of trying a man's patience by bringing more than merely a vagina to the table. As a man, you should be informed that an inherently irrational being is going to do nothing but antagonize the patience of someone who thinks in logic, rather than the cognitive cartwheels of reactive transient emotionalism. The biggest flattery of all to women, which only an intelligent woman will realize, is that despite the sheer frustration and pain she causes him with her volatile emotivity, 
is that such a man still chooses to stick with her and provide for her, despite her shortcomings. A female's self-awareness of his sacrifice and a declaration of appreciation for that sacrifice goes a long way to help reconcile the huge fundamental differences in expectation that men and women have of each other. Women being far more audaciously demanding and stringently needy by nature of their disposition than men are. I'll end this article on the following closing thought. It is somewhat insane how the appreciation of an intrinsically irrational woman within the paradigm of a relationship is valued so intimately by the romantic disposition of what is otherwise a rational man. It is often true, after all, that we value that which is hardest to obtain. And a woman's appreciation is scarcely given in earnest. A Most Solipsistic Nature A picture held us captive, and we could not get outside it, for it lay in our language, and language seemed to repeat it to us inexorably. Ludwig Wittgenstein Number 1. Introduction Women conflate histrionics with characteristic depth. Because to women, depth is defined by interweaving hues of diverse emotional experience and how they relate to one another, rather than an understanding of the abstract. Conversely, man defines depth by struggle, knowledge, and a capacity for the abstract thought necessary to think critically. The masculine does not view the incessant cataloging and processing of one's emotional history to be particularly interesting or deep. However, this propensity is an intrinsic, fundamental of the solipsistic rationalization process native to women. It is this process by which women build their self-perception. Naturally, the flaw of this process is the dominance of the cataloged emotional narrative and an absence of introspection in regard to it. The distinction between introspection and solipsism lies in that introspection assumes the external world is the root attempting to understand where the individual fits in relation to said world. Solipsism assumes the individual is the root, and attempts to understand how the external world fits in with relation to the self. What I think becomes, I think that made me feel because... And so whilst a woman considers it enlightenment to explore every nuance of her emotional palette, men view such fixation as nothing more than infantile self-absorption. Antithetically, what man views as immature behavior, woman perceives as mature. To a woman, there is nothing more interesting and mature than understanding herself. Whilst man desires to understand the world, a woman desires to understand herself. When a woman declares she needs to find herself, other than riding a train of exotic men to accomplish the task, what she means to communicate is, I'm leaving to seek nuanced emotional experiences I haven't felt before, eliciting the further unspoken implication, and I don't think you can provide those experiences. By nature of solipsism, women deem the abstract obtuse and the solipsistic reasonable, whilst man the contrary, the solipsistic obtuse and the abstract reasonable. Within the sexual differences into what constitutes human depth, we merely scratch the surface in elucidating how distinct the psychological perceptions of men and women are. Number two, the pause in priority. Free a woman of material dependence, 
and any polite sensibility or sense of self-constraint flees in an unending pursuit of new emotional luxury. When surviving is no longer an issue, the pursuit of rich and nuanced emotional experiences come to the forefront of a woman's wants. Really, a woman's need for resources is nothing more than an unwelcome interruption of her primary psychological drive, emotional self-discovery. And so the gratitude of a desperate woman provides the perfect guise for solipsistic selfishness. It will make her seem like a good woman, one who cares for others more than herself. But the mere act of provisioning shifts her priorities. She must no longer behave deferentially to have her material needs met. Her pursuit of intense emotion is only paused by the urgency of her material needs. It is never vanquished. No wonder, then, that a woman's directive is to first seek out a man who can provide, only to later seek a man who can induce emotional intensity, should the prior be incapable or no longer capable of providing it. The boring, sycophantic, domesticated male is a necessity of bated breath for the woman without wealth, but truly, it is the detached, ever-alluring, but never-quite-attainable alpha she truly longs for. Romance and sex, as distinct as they are, are the culminating opiates of emotional experience. Fear and power, but the aphrodisiac to wetten the feminine emotional appetite. Therefore, in the pursuit of unending solipsistic self-discovery, it seems only natural that women would be most permanently drawn to such things, for their ability to provide the most compelling, fantastical emotion is unchallenged. It is female nature to learn about herself via the emotional roller coaster. So, what better way is there for a woman to research herself other than to pursue romance? The fixation with romance is not solely part of her biological imperative to produce offspring, but likewise a window into the feminine soul, the need to indulge her most visceral emotivity. And this inclination refuses to cease even when a woman is reproduced countless times. This suggests its presence within the feminine is not a clear-cut evolutionary psychological benefit we can deduce to be a simple manifestation of women's biological need to seek out optimum genetic material. Because if it were, a craving for romance, the opiate of solipsism, would diminish, if not vanish, in women who have birthed multiple children. Instead, we note its persevering intrinsicality. A 60-year-old woman with five children is no less solipsistic in longing for romance than a 20-year-old with zero. She may be less optimistic of the endeavor, but nevertheless it is something she shall crave should she lack it. And I think it not that romance is a solipsistic determiner for commitment and provisioning, as the most sought-after romance is always that which is unabashedly obsessed with the woman, not any children she has. Likewise, for good measure, such romance is forbidden, often sexually depraved and absent the mundanity of everyday life. Indeed then, the pursuit of emotional intensity is a goal unto itself, one that surpasses all else. Female solipsism goes far beyond a woman's role as a mother, and if too pervasive, actually undermines her capacity in this role. Number three, communication, abstraction, and solipsism. Much unlike man, who searches for understanding in the external world, a woman's quest for understanding lies within the emotion of the internal world. Women are not so interested in the quirks and qualities of the abstract world in so much as they are ever perplexed by their emotions. 
where a man's curiosity lies in how the external world functions and how he can best manipulate it, a woman's curiosity lies in how her internal world functions and how she can best utilize the external world to manipulate her well-being. Essentially, men are knowledge-focused, whilst women are self-knowledge-focused. Men are curious of the abstract. Women are curious of the fluidity and sentiment of the self. Man defines himself in relation to what his observations conclude. Woman defines herself in relation to how her observations make her feel. Women are near constantly preoccupied with their emotions in response to external stimuli. This inhibits external analysis, focusing it internally. Women will communicate how they felt from memory, eliciting further feelings, leading to word-by-word disseminations of how she believes her feelings define her as she feels them. And so there is this continuous cycle of feelings eliciting further feelings, which a woman then needs to factor into her overall view of herself. Only with a conclusion rationalized to be emotively acceptable does she find relief. Such a conclusion is rarely ever the truth, but rather her rationalized chosen truth. A truth that reconciles negative with positive emotion to bring about an internal balance that is completely unconcerned with the abstraction that is objectivity. As such, the solipsism of women appears to be not just a limitation, but an addiction. An addiction man finds psychologically arduous should he find himself in the not-so-pretty situation of playing therapist to the ever-dissatisfied self-discovering woman. When a woman talks about her feelings, she is defining them as they are brought to the surface and expressed. Women need to talk about how they feel, because although their focus is internal, their process is external. As such, they address external problems from the position of their emotions, without even so much a hint of desire to remove said emotional filter. This is the core of what we mean by women are solipsistic. Sanity to man lies in understanding the world. A woman's sanity lies in understanding herself. A woman who cannot understand herself is fraught with distress, compelled only to seek further self-understanding. Man experiences a similar distress and an inability to understand the world rather than himself. In this we note the similarity, yet complete distinctiveness of the sexes. Much unlike the self, however, surroundings can be replaced. The self can be influenced, but it is ineludible. As such, a woman cannot escape herself, for she is always herself. The craziest woman is therefore the woman who has no outlet to process her emotions, for her relative sanity is entirely dependent on the process of emoting. So despite women being stuck in their heads, or should I say hearts, they speak loquaciously. To process her emotion, there is talking. Lots of talking. So why does a man stuck in his head tend to focus outwardly and process his observations inwardly, whilst a woman focuses inwardly but processes her observations outwardly? namely with voluble chatter. It is a most quirky irony that, in a quest to comprehend herself, a woman will speak constantly. It is by merit of solipsism and this constant need for emotional self-discovery that every woman considers herself an expert on herself, and as such, is inclined to talk at great length about herself. In terms of attraction, 
There is nothing a woman loves more than for a newly acquainted man to tell her something she considers true about herself. A man who seems to know a woman on the emotional level without that woman having to express herself exudes his own enchanting intrigue. By being able to communicate with women on this level, man creates his presence within her solipsistic world. He just, like, totally gets me. This is oft mistaken for narcissism. But should she lack narcissism, such a quality still persists. For not only is self-obsession a product of narcissism, but likewise a product of solipsism. Therefore, being that solipsism is intrinsic to women, self-obsession is an unavoidable byproduct. Indeed, a woman's most profound hobby is that of her self-interest, chiefly the cataloged history of emotions she has experienced, how they shape who she is, and which ones are desirable enough to be pursued for recreation. To summarize this section, the emotional world is solipsistic, for it is singularly distinct from individual to individual, like a series of unconnected universes existing simultaneously. The abstract world, on the other hand, is a shared constant, external, one we all operate and cohabit within. To women, there is no distinction between the emotional and the abstract, for she believes the emotional is abstract. Her instinct is that her inner world is an abstract world she must constantly process and seek to understand via external communication. To men, the inner world is a solipsistic world. Both men and women have an inner emotional world, but men have less interest in processing the nuances of this world and live their lives mentally more in the abstract world. Number four, struggle. Few women play the male game. That is, that depth is a product of hardship, study, and self-awareness. To women, self-awareness amounts to nothing more than solipsistic indulgence. This is to experience strong emotion and to then process that emotion via further emoting. The reason women constantly communicate and address their emotion is because they seek to understand past emotion. And then by understanding past emotion, they experience the sensation of discovery. To experience emotion and process emotion is what a woman considers growth. Histrionic solipsism is a female simulacrum for depth. Where genuine struggle is not achieved, it will be manufactured. The modern woman believes experiencing a wide range of emotion is what makes her deep and worldly. Women have a propensity for histrionics, because it is through drama and subsequent emotional reflection that a woman evaluates herself as a person. The female mind is characterized by its solipsistic nature. Therefore, it stands to reason that women intuit their self-awareness rather than deduce it. Number five, in closing. The emotional narrative on which a woman's solipsism is predicated is so disjointed in nature so very non-sequitur to all but her, that an element of the purpose in a woman's communication of her feelings appears to be a need for her narrative to be externally corroborated. If we assume this principle is true, it further elucidates women's need to be understood, no matter how unintelligible her line of reasoning. Solipsism, Emotion, and Arguments any woman who is sure of her own wits is a match at any time for a man who is not sure of his own temper. Wilkie Collins. Number one, introduction. 
You do not argue with women when you wish for them to comprehend, comply, or agree. You cannot argue against women's feelings, only manipulate them. Argument necessitates reason, but reason is ineffectual in conflict with women. In non-political matters, where a man will yield to superior logic, a woman will not. And so man must manipulate women's emotions in a way that makes her cooperative, or he should not engage her at all. If a woman is so entitled or indignant that you find yourself unable to escape her compulsion to argue, you would be wise to engage her as a Machiavellian rather than a logician. Men must remember that when lured into argument with a woman, he is at battle. The dispute at hand is Machiavellian, not rational. A game, not a civilized debate. The man who believes the argument is about mutual cooperation via the discovery of truth rather than the assuagement of the involved woman's emotional state, operates on a doomed axiom. A man's desire to problem-solve is fundamentally incompatible with a woman's desire for catharsis. Number two, male ignorance. Men are quite wrongfully taught they should placate women's emotions or engage in mind-numbingly futile attempts to reason with them. To do either is to forfeit power before conflict even begins. Such strategies are losing propositions. Men should neither placate nor reason with a distressed woman, but rather, he should be charming enough to keep conflict superficial. When argument cannot be avoided, he needs to be Machiavellian enough to belittle her. He should not, under any uncertain circumstance, argue back and forth with any degree of seriousness, for arguing against a woman's emotional state is as foolish as it is masochistic. If conflict is unavoidable and reason impenetrable, all that is left is to assert dominance. This is man's only recourse when a woman is trying to dominate him psychologically with her emotions. Once her emotions have settled, it is wise to explain your reasoning and expectations as a way of guiding the woman, should you care for her. But only outside the confines of argument, never within the heat of it. Naturally, if the woman in question is insignificant, such paternal patience is unnecessary. Aftercare is discretionary. Number three, insecurity, a basis for feminine indignance. When an argument begins, a woman's emotions ensure her uncooperativeness. When a woman stands on the precipice of dissatisfaction, her imperviousness to reason makes the mere concept of argument inane. The key to cooperation, therefore, lies in keeping her emotional state positive. Just as one would not build a dam for water in a volcano, they would be wise not to attempt reasoning with a distressed woman. And yet a woman's feelings are quick to sour. Even the tamest critiques and concerns can result in ill feeling, largely by merit of woman's inability to handle such things. And so the trap of arguing with a woman is always there, should a man express himself without filtering himself. Often a man knows not how such benign comments result in such grave offense, but such unsophisticated sensitivity is intrinsic to femininity. One would not be mistaken for thinking I am describing the insecure rather than women per se. But then it would be disingenuous to assert that the vast majority of women are anything but insecure. So are these things traits of women or traits of the insecure? I would say both. But then I would also assert that women are intrinsically insecure, and that many arguments take place because a woman is demanding her insecurity be assuaged in spite of the overwhelming importance of the issue at hand. Men who exhibit similar behaviors 
are likewise womanlike in their mental frailty. Number four, cause and effect versus solipsistic blame attribution. When you argue against a woman's feelings, you enter her frame by tacitly accepting the validity of her emotion's premise. Acknowledgement is all it takes to give the irrationality of her emotion credence, and therefore such acknowledgement should be avoided. Much to our mutual annoyance, a woman's feelings are typically anything but valid. You see, to a woman, whatever she feels, in spite of why she feels it, is valid. Women care not for the why behind their feelings, but simply the fact that they are feeling. As such, the presence of a feeling is proof enough of its validity to a woman. In a sort of infinite solipsistic loop, she intuits the feeling exists, therefore it is valid. If she feels a negative feeling, regardless of the reasonableness of your position, she will blame you for it. In this manner, she disregards the importance of cause and effect because such things are irrelevant to her emotion's solipsism. As cause and effect take place outside of the female mind, it is irrelevant to her. Solipsism cares not for abstraction. Now, while one could posit that blame qualifies as an investigation into the why of how she feels what she does, it really isn't. Because the blame given is entirely arbitrary by merit of its solipsistic nature. Owing to a lack of abstraction, it is simple blame attribution and affirmation for the self-perpetuation of her emotional state. It is not investigative in the cogent sense of the word. If she were truly interested in the why she feels what she does, she would look beyond blame, analyze her actions for wrongdoing, and come to a reasoned judgment on if her feelings were a reasonable or unreasonable response. If she found them to be unreasonable, she would disregard them and show interest in solving the initial issue. She would do this, rather than allow her feelings to take precedence over the issue which triggered them. Of course, this is not how women work. It is the feeling born of the issue that takes priority, not the issue itself. A minority of women can do this retroactively, but I have known not a woman who can do this in the moment. Dare I say, none can. Number five, the invalidity of female emotion and its frustrative affection. Say a female colleague is making grave errors in her work, and you give her suggestions on how to improve her technique. All too commonly, if suggestions were not given with great euphemism and diplomacy, you would cause offense. As such, you can see how easily the premise for a woman's feelings is flawed. Because it is not difficult to offend a woman, and neither does she need a logical reason to be offended. Feeling bad is offense enough. And intolerant to stress as women are, it is a laborious inadvertence that occurs with great frequency. And so it is the woman's nature to constantly misdirect the man away from his criticisms and concerns, and rather to vilify him for daring to infringe on the sanctity of her emotional well-being. Where man will endeavor to make his original point, stick to the point, have the point recognized, and come to an arrangement over his concern, the woman cares only about how his point made her feel, not the point itself. Man doubles down on his reasoning, provoking more negative feeling in the woman, who in turn doubles down on the importance of her emotional state. And so the woman will neither address the point nor give the point much thought, much to the complete torture of the well-intentioned man. Naturally, this leads to endless frustration and only serves to further alienate the two parties. Women are quick to offend, 
quick to anger, and slow to reason, even in the absence of hostility. Indeed, it is such traits that are often the cause of hostility. Whilst man wants to pursue what he believes to be a problem that needs addressing, the only problem worthy of addressal in a woman's mind is the maintenance of a positive emotional state. Whilst the man continues to attempt fixing the original issue, the woman becomes more annoyed her emotions are being ignored. And so at such a crossroads, male and female nature is at odds. Man wants to pursue what he believes to be the truth or correct, whilst a woman wishes to maintain her emotional well-being at any cost. It is for these reasons we refer to women as the most responsible teenager in the house. They cannot cope with stress in the way that men can, and so they can neither reason nor argue as well as men can. Remember, one need not be the superior logician to win an argument, as the prowess in which women argue with stands testament. You merely need to be the more psychologically dominant. An upset woman will dominate the frame of an interaction by maintaining your mutual focus on an indignant investigation of her feelings, particularly the source of her feelings. And of course, in argument, it is you who is the undisputed stimulus for her negative feelings. In this frame of mind, absolutely nothing matters to a woman other than her need to understand her feelings and receive validation of their legitimacy. I'm repeating this point with great frequency, but it is important it is internalized. Your point is irrelevant to her if it elicits emotional discomfort. Number six, emotional endurance. A woman does not care if she is in the wrong, has disobeyed or betrayed. For a creature who does not excel at logic is neither cogent nor appreciative of such a thing when upset. Even at the best of times, women struggle to balance reason with emotion. That's when they're trying. In argument, they're not even trying. She will not give in. Solipsism sees to it that women are stubborn. Arguments nourish women. They feed her emotionally. Bar the histrionic man, argument absolutely exhausts men. Not only that, but being the party far more privy to the realm of reason, it is likelier you will give in than it is she. Her indignance will outendure not only your reason, but likewise your desire to even advocate for yourself. If you get angry, your anger will be used to immediately invalidate your disagreement while simultaneously validating the credibility of her histrionics. Your anger will be turned against you. You will be painted as the oppressor, and her the victimized. You will be made to feel guilty for your anger. And then following from this premise, your anger will be used to retroactively scapegoat you for her unacceptable decorum. The narrative put forth will be that it's your fault that she's upset, even if it isn't. Even if you know with your full faculty of reason that such a thing is ridiculous, women do not care. Number seven, in closing. It is not in your interest to work against her emotions, but rather, you should work in tandem with them. Leverage her emotions. Charge them so that they are conducive to rather than defiant of your goals. Know how to make her feel good, and her agreement will be yours. Argue against her emotions, and no matter how grand and well-articulated your point, she will never agree. Equity and reasonableness are of minor relevance to a woman's emotional self-satisfaction. Women do not sacrifice their emotional well-being to do what is morally or reasonably right, but rather, they sacrifice what is morally or reasonably right as to fulfill their emotional needs. 
By manipulating her feelings to something more beneficial to yourself, you can change her frame and even pull her into yours. This is why, when receptive, amused mastery is excellent. Arguing a woman's emotions with reason, as is man's predilection, is a losing proposition. For her emotions are far too visceral to be swayed by the passionlessness of reason. The heart cares not what the head thinks, and a truer thing could not be said for women. Promiscuity and Civilization Civilization is like a thin layer of ice upon a deep ocean of chaos and darkness. Werner Herzog Number 1. Introduction As is typical, I was browsing the Red Pill Forum when a gentleman's question caught my eye. Monogamy isn't the norm in the animal kingdom by far, so why do we so hungrily desire this form of relationship? The questioner is, as is quite common, falling victim to the appeal of nature fallacy. The fallacy is the assumption that because something is natural, it is optimum. In this case, promiscuity comes naturally to humans, therefore promiscuity is a good thing. Of course, such thinking is not only fallacious, but solipsistic. It appears a given that the average mind conflates naturality to be synonymous with good. Such thinking is used to great effect in marketing to give the word natural a positive connotation. Objectively, the word is neither negative nor positive, merely neutral. Therefore, the ubiquity of the assumption that natural can be equated with good is nothing more than a culturally programmed mimetic infused into the collective consciousness. We typically associate the word nature and its derivative forms with health, enchanting trees, and lush green lawns. But such an association is an inaccurate synonymity for good, as cancer, manure, and vomit are as equally natural, if not quite so appealing. To briefly demonstrate the irrationality of such an idea, consider you use a computerized device to read this. Computers are incredibly useful, but they are anything but natural. So why do we use computers if they're unnatural creations that aren't the norm in the animal kingdom? Well, of course, because computers, like all technology, confer benefits upon human lifestyle we would not otherwise reap. The unnaturalness of computers is considered, on the whole, to be a net positive, not negative. As such, computers have become a bedrock of civilization. They do not need to be natural to enhance our quality of life. They merely need to be the most efficient in performing the duties assigned to them. In this regard, monogamy and computers have a lot in common. Number two, individuals, families, and civilization. The institution of family does for social dynamics what computers do for electronics. Both inventions revolutionize and dominate their respective spheres. Property rights, law, marriage, all these things were invented to stabilize civilization by exerting environmental pressure on human instincts. Without such things, we revert to a base tribalism violence, and petty territorial barbarianism. Although one may not see it, for an idea, social grouping or principle is less tangible than a computer. The family unit is a prerequisite for the functioning of more complex social order. One cannot have committees, courts, institution, panels, religions, or even nations without first establishing family. As the individual bonds with the family, the family bonds with the civilization it inhabits. 
But individuals deprived of the bonds of family by outcome of immutable social factors are often at odds with civilization. Such individuals give up on community, opting for a more parasitic survival strategy. They are the shameless narcissists, the angry barbarians, and each and every shade of dysfunction there between. Scarcely do such people care for civilization. And how can we expect them to care for something as grand and abstract as civilization when such individuals were never fully subject to the bonds of family? How does one come to love something as grand as nation when they had not even the love of kin? Far from statesmen interested in the public good, vagabonds and the estranged are typically apathetic to the plight of civilization. Make no mistake in thinking it is only the estranged who behave in such a manner. Indeed, entire families have pillaged civilizations in pursuit of internal interests. However, I think this more an affection of excessive power rather than a quirk of family. As such, this contention is a generalization rather than an absolutism. Familial estrangement manufactures apathy. This is how promiscuity and divorce undermine social progress and, in turn, civilizational progress. The effects of such action cause pain, which in turn promotes excessive individualism and a disdain for collectivism. And so the cosmic recurrence that is a need for balance is tipped too far in one direction. That is, an obsession with the self, individualism, narcissism, and a disregard for the whole, collectivism, abstraction. Naturally, this is bad for family. And what is bad for family is in turn bad for civilization. Each family represents a building block in the construction of civilization. Families, in the traditional sense of the word, contribute more value to society than lone individuals. Generally speaking, they have better mental health, a higher sense of civic duty, are more productive, and pay more taxes than broken homes or one-person households. And this seems only rational. Family is bound by blood. Civilization forms around the desires and needs of such bonds. People work harder and produce more when they care for and are cared for by others. Familial social pressure urges individuals to excel, to make the family proud, not to disappoint. Of course, there are always exceptions. There are highly motivated self-starters devoid of family, married to nothing but narcissism and money. But such individuals are the exception rather than the rule. In general, the prevailing notion is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That families achieve more as units than they would if their members were autonomously estranged. This doesn't mean that family life is suited to all. It simply is. Number three, freedom and human instinct. Rebels have always been attractive. As truth be told, it is the not-so-secret desire of human nature to defy social order and do whatever, whenever. To have one's cake and eat it. To relish in the destructive aspects of human instinct without suffering consequentially at the hands of civilization. Civilization does not punish the individual out of sadism, but rather, it punishes destructive behavior because that behavior threatens the social order necessary to sustain civilization. Now, of course, I realize in my statement of this that we endure a contemporary exception to this maxim. That is, the normalization of adultery via the feminist spearheaded collapse of the traditional family. But I digress. It is human nature to be infatuated with freedom, in spite of considerations pertaining to the stability of such. And so, 
The minority who manage to stylishly defy society and get away with it are near universally idolized by the masses who are less free. Rock stars, rappers, and social butterflies looking to make a name for themselves all encapsulate such attitudes. In truth, if all enjoyed the near-absolute freedom of the few, social order would break down. Civilization would be but a shadow of its former self. And then those left would quickly call for order and more conservative social mores. Indeed, boom and bust, rise and decline. The attitudes and social mores of a civilization's people appear quite cyclical. It appears that with prosperity comes the rise of the feminine. Like children with access to the cookie jar, this leads to excessive freedom, which in turn leads to destruction and general apathy. Then when collapse comes, the masculine takes over, leading to order, conservatism, creation, and empathy. Civilization is a process of domestication. Without it, we are more beast-like than man. For humans evolved far longer in a pre-civilizational state than in a civilizational one. One need only look at cases of feral children to see how, without civil domestication, a human becomes a beast. Your ability to indulge your curiosity and intellect to exponential heights, to grow, to expand your mind, and to travel vast distances, these things are possible only by the discoveries and sustenance of civilization. As such, to enjoy the furnishings of higher civilization, we are required to, for better or worse, forego some of our more primitive aspects. Unfettered hedonism is just one of these aspects. Although it is popular to think this is a piece of the proverbial cake that can be eaten and enjoyed without consequence. Number four, promiscuity threatens civilization. I would hazard a guess in asserting that promiscuity costs our civilization dearly. Indeed, in the pursuit of orgasmic pleasure, we have a higher national debt, welfare, a burgeoning divorce industry, lost boys and girls growing up fatherless increased mental illness, higher rates of crime, etc. I could go on, but I think the point's been sufficiently made. This is more a statement of reality than it is a judgment on the behavior of those who contribute to the decline. It is what it is, and so what will be, will be. And even in spite of moral considerations, it is most apparent that promiscuity diminishes the quality of a civilization by merit of its societal consequences. Should promiscuity not undermine family, it would be all well and good. And so it appears that families cannot insulate themselves with an open-door sexual policy, just as nations cannot insulate themselves with an open-door immigration policy. Civilizations that do not protect their culture lose their culture. In truth, a family is a micro-civilization. It has its own rules, customs, politics, and opinions distinct from the larger culture. A strong family much like a strong nation, is therefore selective rather than liberal in who it allows into its domain. And this is the incredible thing about the social engineers who compose much the intelligentsia of Western civilization. They ignore the history of human social development in favor of pursuing ever-evolving obscurities dreamt up in the solitary detachedness of the ivory tower. A man's innate power is in his bodily strength and logic a woman's, in her bodily beauty and cunning. The social engineers ignore such immutable human intricacies in their egalitarian idealism. The social contract is the set of social rules that make civilization possible, 
Social engineers create and perpetuate ideologies which alter the terms of said contract, damaging civilization by swapping what works with what is desired to work. Swapping what is functional if imperfect with what is dysfunctional and even less perfect. Then, quite satirically, it labels this regression progress. Number five, religion subjugates promiscuity. Almost every religious institution to ever dominate the hearts and minds of a society has preached quite mightily the importance of monogamy. Religion, as untrue as it appears, is therefore not only a pre-science way of explaining reality, but likewise a civilizational mechanism for social order. It is the imposition of order on creatures capable of order, but lacking the self-discipline to exercise such order without theological arguments permeating the hive mind. Human instinct is not without fault, and thus, by merit of its destructive aspects, will undo civilization if left unchecked. Religion inherently acknowledges the flawed nature of the human character, and so brainwashes humanity in an effort to reconcile human flaw with human ingenuity. Civilization is a construction that balances on the fragile precipice between human instinct and human imagination. Civilizational progress is therefore contingent on the balance of conflict between our instinct to seek what we momentarily desire and the loftier pursuits of what our minds envisage. The trade-offs one must make in the pursuit of either is a warring battlefield, one that permeates the root and core of all that we do. Civilization demands imagination, whilst instinct, the mediocrity of self-gratification. Without the subjugation and noblest oppression of the prior, the freedom-seeking of the latter has a propensity to win, and with that victory, civilization falls. Number six, in closing. From time to time, I like to diverge from the chatter of Machiavellianism and evolutionary psychological explanations of female behavior to explore the grander picture. Indeed, the state of civilization, aka the decline, is of great interest to me. These pieces tend not to be popular because they imply judgment, self-sacrifice, and collectivism. Excessive selfishness and apathy is the spirit of the time, and yet, in spite of that, I think such pieces necessary for stimulating a more nuanced worldview. As such, I hope the article compelled you to think, which, for better or worse, is characteristically the intent of this blog. In addition, I kindly ask the reader to note their opinion in the enclosed poll. Criticism is, as ever, welcomed in the comments. The Nature of Women But what really matters is not what you believe, but the faith and conviction with which you believe. Nut Hamsen Number 1. Introduction To understand women with at least some degree of competence, one must firstly understand Machiavellianism. Once they understand Machiavellianism, they must come to understand dissociation. After understanding dissociation, the next logical step is to understand dissociation's relationship with rationalization. For rationalization is reason built upon fantasy. A hoax, but one that can only be identified as such once you have investigated its origin. Most within the red pill community come to know of rationalization before dissociation. I suspect many know not what dissociation is, in spite of its relation to rationalization. Without dissociation, the reality-removing mechanism on which feminine solipsism is predicated, 
rationalization lacks the conviction needed to be convincing. The most compelling of a woman's performances thus requires dissociation to masquerade as truth. If she did not believe her lies, neither would you. Number two, dissociative rationalization, aka hamstring. If womankind did not possess an infinite capacity for dissociation, the effectiveness of her manipulations would be greatly vitiated. Such a woman would be unable to leverage her sexuality into obtaining commitment once she's had more than a few partners. Her sexuality would be utilized and disposed of like something to be consumed, as once perceived a whore. She would become her sexuality and deemed to lack essence and absence of it. All too aware of this, dissociation is women's primary coping mechanism. If a woman cannot sell herself a false narrative, she cannot manipulate men into holding her in higher regard. Her worthiness of this bothers her not. Her only concern is to obtain her ends. Although man is romantic, he does not easily trust or forgive women of dubious history. Such women are objectified in great ubiquity, for no value is seen in a whore outside the physical pleasure her flesh can offer. Some women set out to commodify themselves in this manner. We call them prostitutes. And yet a prostitute would not be able to engage in the mental gymnastics necessary to forgive herself her promiscuity if she were chained to decision-making in a way that reason-absent disassociation necessitates. In order for a woman to opportunistically capitalize on her sexuality, she must be capable of great dissociation. With dissociation, she can avoid consequences for her life choices, enabling her to convince a man she possesses an innocence and chastity she has long lacked. A woman would get what she deserves, rather than what she wanted or needed, if she could not dissociate. Luckily, nature has equipped women with an instinctual proclivity to dissociate. Women have evolved to become humanity's most competent liars, in spite of themselves, for their own sake. Rather than striving to be better than she is, womankind has become competent in pretending she need not be better because she already is what she isn't. Better. Number three, mental gymnastics. Machiavellianism, dissociation, and rationalization lie at the root and core of female behavior. Female manipulation is about as natural as much as it is instinctual. It comes easily. Some women are comfortable with this aspect of themselves. Others are not. Some may freely admit this to themselves. Others may need to see themselves as good. Such women seek to maintain a pretense of virtue in order to prop up whatever semblance of sanity they possess. When a woman cannot accept what she is, she lies to herself about who she is until she believes in her lies. A lie told long enough feels like the truth. Women know this truth quite intimately. Of course, there are women who are at peace with their nature and do not care. Their rationalization merely a method of safeguarding reputation, a neurotic means to a rational end. These women are far more dangerous than their in-denial counterparts, for they are cognizant but seek not to mitigate their nature. This is to say that all women are Machiavellian but some are so with more zeal and aggression. Effectively, some women value altruism in spite of themselves, so upon introspection, deceive themselves about themselves with great conviction. 
Others do not care, so they do not. All women are similar, but likewise within that similarity, there is difference as there is with men. The difference may not be as emphatically noticeable as it is within the diversity of man, but it is there. If the rather drawn-out discussion on morality we've been having has taught you anything recently, it's that although we all value the ideas discussed by the red pill, each of us will act upon this knowledge differently. Women are much the same with their capacity to manipulate and dissociate. Sometimes they indulge in it and weaponize it. Other times they deny reality and live a lie as a means to cope. In spite of how they use it, they all use it. What one must realize is that woman's capacity to rationalize away anything she doesn't like is one of the greatest tools she has in amplifying her manipulative prowess. If women couldn't dissociate and rationalize to the point she can pass a lie detector test, she'd be far less proficient in manipulating man. And a woman who cannot manipulate a man is a vulnerable woman, for she is completely reliant on the volition and altruism of man rather than possessing any for herself. As such, women are not built to live and hunt alone, but to attach themselves to man. Conversely, man does not need women, but rather he covets her for all her ostentatious adornment and lustful appeal. Women's need is greater, but owing to the libido of testosterone, man's is more pressing. Number four, dissociation, her substitute for psychopathy. I find female dissociation to be something tantamount to psychopathy in the absence of psychopathy. Women can do great evil by act of self-compulsion, effectively inculcating themselves to believe the abhorred acts they have engaged in are without dishonor. In this aspect, honor is a uniquely male abstraction that women do not hold themselves to. Even if a woman does believe in honor, she may as well not, for she will find a way to pervert the truth and clutch at any justification necessary to make an act of dishonor seem honorable. They hold onto such clutch straws with a delusional sincerity that belies falsehood. And all this occurs to ensure her interests at any cost. I see a utilitarian parallel between female nature and psychopathic moral reasoning. In fact, I see many similarities between the two. But one must be careful not to confuse correlation with causation. It is not that women as a group are psychopathic, not at all. But rather, that dissociation allows them to behave as if they were by completely twisting reality. The histrionic self-delusion inherent of women is an effective substitution for psychopathy if you need to get something done at any cost but aren't actually a psychopath. Man has always been baffled by how someone who feels great sympathy for others can seemingly, as if by choice, turn off such sympathy without a shred of guilt. This is a behavioral observation unique to women, noted by many men in many places. What they are observing is a woman dissociating in order to withdraw sympathy where she once felt it. Even after reading Red Pill material, man does not completely understand this aspect of women. The moral and logical gymnastics native to womankind continues to baffle man, because man is a creature of reason and morals more than he is pragmatism. For women, this is not so. The greatest irony is that man ponders women with a consciousness bound to reason, endeavoring to find the reason for the unreasonableness of the opposite sex, 
repeatedly failing. In this pursuit, he encounters great futility and frustration. For even if the opposite sex did possess the required self-awareness to explain herself, which she does not, she would not be inclined to explain such a thing, for it would not serve her. Number five, women, words, beliefs, and lies. I don't assign any real value to what a woman says when she speaks of morals or loyalty or other such topics. This may sound harsh or undue, but I believe it necessary. Knowing someone can dissociate in order to hold incredibly strong convictions, and then likewise do the same to dispose of said convictions when they are no longer useful, means that person will never have any credibility or sway with me. Someone who is too fluid in their views and convictions is someone who does not have strong views or convictions. Because even though these things may seem plausible and compelling in the moment, they are too temporary to carry any real depth. In essence, women have mastered the aesthetics of depth, to seem deep without being deep. I regard such things to be nothing more than pretty aesthetics, an extension of what she does with her physical appearance manifesting in the mental. The female word is much like the female form, covered by makeup, Nothing more than pretension, a distorted augmentation of who she really is. Much like man wishes to believe the woman he lusts for would be just as pretty without the makeup, he falls victim to the same line of thinking when assessing her mentality. And so as a man, it takes me far too much work to ascertain whether her asserted beliefs are things said to please me, to deceive me, or to otherwise please or deceive herself. And I know it is always one of these things, and never not one of these things, because if it were not one of these things, she would not be a woman. As such, one should judge a woman how one would judge any character so flexible as to be scrupulous. Ascertain whether what she says benefits her to be seen and heard saying, or whether her beliefs assist her goals in spite of reputational considerations. If it does not aid her goal, and yet she claims it, it's likely a lie. For example, if she claimed to be unconditionally loyal, ask yourself if she needs to be loyal to get what she wants. No, you say? You say she ensnared a man who cannot maintain her respect to marry her? You find it likely she would get everything in the divorce? Then she claims what she does to safeguard her reputation, or because she is otherwise invested in ignorant self-delusion. The delusion that she is incapable of the betrayal that any man's sound of mind knows her to be capable of. Such a woman is not self-aware enough as to be in touch with her nature, but rather, she is enamored with the false image she has created for herself to look at. She believes she is the thing she tells herself she is, rather than the thing her behavior tells us she is. How does she so convincingly dissociate, you ask? Women are good at transference a term I use to refer to reverse projection. Essentially, she believes a man's loyalty to her is important, and so through cognitive transference, can borrow the devoutness of that belief and appear, at least superficially, to hold herself to the same standard. She will temporarily believe she is loyal due to the conviction of her dissociation, much like you would temporarily believe an ugly woman is pretty whilst possessed by bourbon. Dissociation is intoxicating and whilst under its influence, her shallow nonsense will sound devout.
Women have an innately powerful capacity to be entirely delusional in a self-serving manner, unhindered by logic and aided by dissociation. Women are masterful liars. They are so good at lying to themselves that lying to you is simply a byproduct of their own delusion. Number six, her fluidity of truth. Women blend truth with convenient lies as to be deliberately confusing in a way that is nothing if not self-serving. The less intelligent amongst them forget what the truth really is because it's only ever what they need it to be. Women are poor at rational abstraction, which means their truth, like them, is fickle. The more intelligent women can keep up with their own lies, and on some level, know they do not entirely believe what they compel themselves to portray. But in spite of such cognizance, such women still possess a prowess in compartmentalizing just enough to maintain the deception necessary to ascertain their goals. Women are greatly goal-oriented and will jump through huge cognitive hoops to get what they want. Logic, valued by men as sacrosanct, is a sordid obstruction to the mechanics of the utilitarian female mind. When logic is inconvenient to a woman, dissociation takes its place. And this way of being that possesses women is so innate, it is not even calculated. It is a truly remarkable thing to behold, as to be a man, no such method of mind is inherent. Your beliefs, your sense of identity, it is neither so fluid nor so flexible as to constantly complement and adapt to your moment's desires. You are not so free in your beliefs because your beliefs are not so fickle. They have merit, structure, and a root reasoning for existing outside the immediate utilitarian aim that you seek. Again, I see great similarity between female and psychopathic morality. This is not to say all women are psychopaths, because that is an incorrect diagnosis, but rather, although through different mechanisms, they equally possess a ruthless, pragmatic morality. Number seven, in closing. It doesn't matter how much conviction a woman speaks with, for she can delude herself to believe whatever is necessary with uncanny prowess. She can pervert the truth so much so that any old nonsense she says can speak with the conviction of truth, even if it is an absolute perversion of it. This is women's greatest power, other than, of course, her sexuality. And it is that element unique to women that makes her as effortlessly Machiavellian as she is. As I've said before, women are nature's Machiavellians. Educated Women and Vapidity Women are considered deep. Why? Because one can never discover any bottom to them. Women are not even shallow. Friedrich Nietzsche. Number one, the disappointment. Education neither imbues a woman with reason nor surgically eviscerates her vapidity. The educated woman is just as vapid as the uneducated. Her vapidity is symptomatic of solipsism. Women's reputation for petty gossip is the most accurate cultural mimetic highlighting the vapidity of the feminine. And yet, it is oft thought that an educated woman is an intellectual woman, and that by merit of such intellect, such women are not vapid. Of course, this notion falls flat on its face when we discover that education does not give the unreasonable reason or the unintellectual intellect. At its best, education makes philosophers out of thinkers and artists out of drawers. The philosopher may draw, but he will never be an artist. 
the artist may think, but he will never be a philosopher. And so we must resign ourselves to a most immutable conclusion. Education cultivates latent talent. It does not imbue absent talent. If personal experience teaches anything, it is that although men expect educated women to be less vapid than uneducated ones, such expectation yields little but disappointment. Only in the most fortuitous of circumstances will such an expectation be fulfilled. I've known many a man to frequent the company of erudite women, some even more learned than he, and yet a common complaint pervades. These women are well-educated, yet somehow they lack self-awareness and appear dense. Her level of education deceptively led the man to expect greater intellect, yet in spite of her education, she disappointed the expectation. And so to an intellectual man, the educated woman is a most curious creature. She is educated, yet comparatively dim. Who naturally associates education with knowledge bereft of self-awareness, or erudition devoid reason and intellectual curiosity? Aren't such things the root of all knowledge? Indeed they are. And yet, via road memorization, knowledge can be passed on without a more than superficial understanding of it. The fundamentals of intellectualism are necessary only for innovation, not repetition. A fast learner is not necessarily a good thinker. One need only look at the Chinese to see emulation rather than innovation. Women, Chinese or not, are much the same. Man's folly lies in his conflation of education with intellectualism. Intelligent men infer that education can only be obtained if one is rational, analytical, and above all, intellectually curious. As such, these men wrongfully assume educated women possess these qualities, for they think it impossible to exceed without them. Of course, this line of reasoning is false. Even the humblest of experience will quickly reveal that the majority of educated women are nothing more than adequate rote learners. Well-versed in the memorization of how complex processes work, but quite unable to reason independently of what they were taught. And so it appears dedication and memory supersede intellect in matters of educational attainment. For if they didn't, we wouldn't have the number of highly educated women that we do. If education demanded independent thought, there would be a degree shortage, and the number of women graduating, it would plummet. There's a reason women make great accountants. Accountants memorize processes to balance assets and liabilities. There is marginal innovation at best. Number two, the hypergamy of academia at a glance. For all the prior stipulated reasons, men who expect educated women to be more interesting and rational will find naught but disappointment. It matters not how much you educate a woman, her lack of logical rigor and vapid obsession with the petty will remain, pettiness being a symptom of solipsism. It is wise to consider it an immutable element of female nature. When a woman's hypergamy speaks, it sounds like this. Why should I have to lower my standards for anyone? Women typically seek education to acquire status and increase their access to high-status men rather than to indulge any sense of innate intellectual curiosity. With the acquisition of education, a woman's already high expectations become even higher. Quite wrongfully, she believes her education increases her attractiveness to men, because being an indicator of status, she finds it attractive in men. This is, of course, no more than projection confused for reality, a common hiccup among the solipsistic.
people poor at abstraction, and the deludedly narcissistic, people who have no rational basis for their elitism. I am Maxim 101. Education and status acquisition increase male dating options, but decrease females'. The reason for this is women date up or across, whilst men date down or across. If you are hypergamous, you're only attracted to people better than you. If you reach the top level as a woman, only the men at the apex will do. If you reach the top level as a man, you have all the women beneath you to choose from. As a function of both hypergamy and sexual economics at the macro level, as women's collective hypergamic need increases, the pool of subsequent men capable of satisfying this need decreases. And so in an age where men of intellectual disposition avoid university, and even the most inanely vapid women are ushered in by the insanity of affirmative action, the quirks of hypergamy begin to surface. If a woman can't find a suitable mate at university, she will still graduate. Only undergraduate men will no longer seem quite so attractive. Why? Because she's an undergraduate too. Undergraduate men could only satisfy her need to upgrade when she perceived them as superior. Now she doesn't. Only men with higher caliber white-collar degrees, e.g. doctors, lawyers, etc., will do. And should such a woman obtain a master's degree and fail to meet a suitable partner? The process repeats, with even higher stakes, until such a woman effectively prices herself out of the market, condemned to decrying men as intimidated by her financial independence rather than repulsed by it. Repulsion, you say? Why would a real man be repulsed? Well, the more educated a woman, the greater her standards and entitlement, and thus in turn, the lesser her attractiveness. Higher status makes people behave more narcissistically. Now, whilst narcissism is a suit well-worn on a man, it is one ill-fitting for a woman. Whilst women are inherently drawn to male narcissism as overconfidence is the linchpin of good masculine game, female narcissism is unattractive to the majority of men. In women, it manifests as bratty, spoiled, hot girl behavior. And men, especially top-tier men, don't want to feel like they're babysitting an overgrown child. Men seek polarity and femininity in long-term relationships. And so women seeking a misguided sense of equality through education only harm their chances at attracting top-tier men. A woman who thinks she's the equal of men, she dates solely due to their greater status, is thus, at least psychologically, an unattractive idiot. This is the inevitable stupidity that occurs when a woman takes a different but equal approach to men, rather than a more traditional perspective that better complements reality. When a woman reaches the heights of professional status, such heights no longer seem all that attractive. The balcony looks more impressive when seen from the street than when stood on. If she can't look up to him, he can't, with some benevolence, look down on her. Without that dynamic, there is no attraction, and thus, no love. Summarizing this chapter. Better educated women means more dissatisfied women. By employing a male strategy in seeking prestige rather than cultivating femininity, women quite literally price themselves out of the market. Why would a sane, successful man wish to endure the insufferableness of a self-important female academic? When society's women become more educated than its men, 
The male aversion to hypergamy-fueled narcissism is heightened in unison with the feminine reluctance to date down. The result? Spinsters and a lot of animosity. Number three, vapidity, depth, and understanding female intelligence. More than anything, I believe if there were something that could destroy female vapidity, it would be education. Education gives women the most potential to develop an intellectual curiosity into the mechanisms behind life's curtain. And yet, such qualities are so incredibly rare amongst women, it leaves me questioning what exactly education does to women. Vapidity is likewise a product of sloppy or poorly thought out notions, normally rattling off however one feels, making superfluous observations, etc., rather than original thought or skepticism stemming from curiosity and inquiry. Vapidity being an effect of solipsism, this makes sense. Education does not override solipsism. Education instills women with knowledge to create a simulacrum of intellect. But this knowledge seems all but divorced of any innate intellectual curiosity. And it is these basic women who deem themselves the intellectual superiors of men who possess no degree. Although many such men possess the innate intellectual curiosity that the majority of degree-holding women lack. An incredible perversity if there ever was one. Stupid, educated women and intelligent, uneducated men. How about that? There are more women than men in higher education nowadays. And yet I would argue with an emphatic conviction that your average uneducated man is more cognizant and intellectually curious than his better educated female counterparts. It's simple. Women's innate fixation with the social, a herd mentality, and a need to be liked and accepted is what drives stupidity, and no amount of education seems to eradicate it. Ergo, if a woman is not vapid, is probably more an effect of her natural biological makeup, e.g. she's an autist, rather than a product of formal education. And yet despite the educational achievements of today's women, said success seems to have had minimal effect on female hobbies and interests. Education hasn't made women interesting. Education hasn't given women hobbies distinct from the uneducated, nor has it imbued any sense of noblesse oblige. Education hasn't disconnected women from the social hive mind and given them any real intellectual autonomy. It doesn't seem to expand the female mind, but rather, it just fills it. And that's sad. Because in an era where everything is a social construct, if anything could manage that, it'd be education. It seems counterintuitive that the average woman with a law or biology degree would even give two remote fucks about Kim Kardashian or whittle on about infantile fascination about shoes, whilst having close to zero passion for more important and intellectually stimulating topics such as philosophy or politics. But there you go. Much about women is counterintuitive at a glance. Counterintuitivity runs through their veins. If it didn't, there would be a less dire need for the red pill. There will always be a woman who will pipe up and say she hates Kim Kardashian and loves Nietzsche. And I'm sure such a woman exists, but she is atypical rather than typical. To not realize she is an outlier, and to make such a solipsistic assertion as a counterargument in attempting to disprove my sentiment, there is great short-sightedness, if not disingenuity. We are, after all, talking about the predilections of women at large, not the impassioned snowflake who's read all of Nietzsche and prefers to meaningfully debate abstract topics with men rather than gossip with women. I suspect the female readers of Illimitable Men lean more toward the latter, but perhaps not. I can only speculate. 
Women tend not to be intellectual people at their cores, but rather they possess the necessary IQ to go through the motions, to rote learn and pass tests, and many do exactly this in order to access men with higher earning potential, as outlined in section 2. Thus, a woman can look great on paper, but remain entirely dull as an effect of absent intellectual curiosity. The core nature of women would appear to persist in spite of any educational programming. Simply put, in matters of the mind, education does not make women more like men. It imbues neither additional reason nor curiosity, only knowledge. You would be surprised just how many women are educated and yet lack an intellectual bone or original thought in their entire body. They are expert learners, clearly focused, disciplined, and smart in so much they can grasp ideas and processes, but they manage to achieve all this without any semblance of intellectual curiosity or original thought. A fascinating phenomenon. I liken it to the transmission of knowledge into a non-aware robot, intelligent, synoptic, but by its very nature devoid of self-awareness. It expertly follows instructions, repeat what it's taught, and emulates what it is shown. But if you stop giving it knowledge, it stops looking for knowledge. It never becomes anything more than it is. It never learns to think for itself and do so with any degree of accuracy or credibility. It is with a certain earnestness that I believe men would be ecstatic if education made women more interesting or innately curious. It's not that I want these assertions to be true, but rather that my experience and observation suggests it simply is. It's easy to read literature such as this and fall under the impression that the intent is to simply talk women down. In earnest, my only intention is to decipher how women so smart can appear so stupid and then explain this disconnect to men. The sentiment is one of realism rather than pessimism, although I am privy to how the two can appear synonymous. Number four, in closing. The majority of women are vapid, vapidity being a symptom of solipsism and thus a core sentiment of AWALT. This is something men have to learn to accept. Wishing they weren't is futile, for it changes not the reality. Women are unwise to try to convince us otherwise, for we have both eyes and ears. Rather, matter-of-factly, the vast majority of women are passionless, vapid, and devoid any real hobby or interest beyond socializing and shopping. Where more socially driven men find women's impulsive, self-absorbed quirks cute and exhilarating, the intellectual man is bored, despondent, and underwhelmed. As much as women, even educated women, find intellectual men who have not immersed themselves in the study of game to be dull, such men find the banality and phatic social-driven conversation of women to be equally boring. The rational man is, sex notwithstanding, bored with women as an effect of the great intellectual chasm between his depth and her lack thereof. The educated woman is rarely an intellectual in the truest sense, a woman of both reason and curiosity. And so men are wise to seek intellectual stimulation and social connection from male company, for it is there they will find greater wealth. An educated woman, as such, confers no additional benefits to a man by merit of her education alone. If anything, her education fortifies her narcissism at the expense of her personality. Not quite what the intellectual man looking for an intellectual equal expects. Truth be told, he'd have better luck discovering Santa's grotto. An intellectual connection is not what women excel at. 
sexes. Women and the Death of Femininity Hardened men make for attractive men, for toughness is a trait that men and women alike covet in men. Almost all respect a hardened man, even when they dislike him. At the same time, hardened women make for utterly repulsive beings. They do not inspire desire nor respect, merely alienation. Hardening is conducive to the cultivation of masculinity, but to femininity, it is toxic. To femininity, it is harmful, deleterious. Women must seek wisdom and respite in the face of suffering, not masculination. For women to preserve their greatest asset, their femininity, they must avoid masculinization at all costs. This is healthier and more conducive to a woman's development than adopting masculine boisterousness. Women are taught to debauch their femininity in pursuit of power and social acceptance under the rule of feminist dogma. They all too unwittingly realize not what they give up by capitulating to feminism. Much to woman's detriment, adhering to the feminist roadmap results in a vitiation of her desirability to the kind of man she yearns for. A specific note in regard to this is the contemporary culture. The current economic model and prevailing social programming of the time push women towards masculinity by framing it as liberation. Feminism sells women the lie that to masculinize is to become free. It convinces the feminine to divorce herself from her nature and to aspire to be that which she isn't. That her desire to nurture, support, and mother is weak. She should become more manlike, fierce, assertive, a conqueror. Indeed, what banal trite. There is no man of worth breathing that wants to commit to the fabled feminist real woman. As such, the typical woman aims to emulate the qualities of men, rather than master the art of femininity. These women have been contorted in belief to reject traditional femininity as abhorrent, weak. They delusively idolize emulating the behavior of men, whilst ironically harboring a hatred for man. They idolize such behavior because they have been taught it as necessary to acquire success and respect. They cannot be any more wrong. Nothing raises the ire and disdain of man more than a woman who attempts to make him obsolete by emulating him. Men desire not masculine women, neither do they wish to compete with them. Men desire feminine women. They want to take care of them. Men of substantial worth reject women devoid of femininity. Women have two distinct choices. The prior, I believe, leading to richer, longer-lasting happiness, and the latter, not so. They may refine their femininity and cultivate that quality to captivate the love of a powerful man. Said man will provide the bulk of the income. Work will be relegated to the realm of hobby, coming not before family, keeping house, and child-rearing. The latter is that of the career woman, of independence. This is the ethos that has led to the collective masculinization, stress, and misery of today's women. They forgo the refinement of femininity to work in the world of business. To be competitive in such an environment, they toughen up to survive, reducing their social appeal. Toughness, distinct from resilience, reduces of women's femininity, thus mitigating her desirability to men. A resilient woman can maintain her femininity and draw upon feminine strength without masculinizing. 
resilient women continue to build upon and maximize their femininity in spite of hardship. They do not give in to the corruptive allure of masculinization and poison themselves with a lust for conquest. They expend their efforts on becoming personable, wise, and altruistic. They look for shelter in friendship and compassion, rather than sacrifice their femininity on the altar of feminism. They enhance rather than contort themselves. They do not entertain bitterness and allow hatred to warp them into pathetic vaginal caricatures of masculinity. They embrace traditional femininity for the value it holds to men and the rewards that yields. They do not adopt the contemptuous inferiority complex symptomatic of feminism. They do not chain themselves to the views of friends who condemn them for aspiring to be traditionally feminine. Those who undergo pain often become tougher of heart as a coping mechanism. With toughness comes a certain masculine component. The more damaged and pain-afflicted a person becomes, the more they harden and toughen. This hardening is a natural response to ineptitude, dysfunction, and disappointment. Hardening is necessary for masculine self-improvement because men are charged with leadership. Men cannot be attractive and fulfilled in their relationship unless they lead. Women can. Men can have it all. They can become harder and likewise more desirable in their masculinity. This could even go so far to explain why, in the psychological sense, women have a propensity to value the ruggedness that experience brings in men, while men, on the other hand, tend to prefer innocence and inexperience in women, defining this as not only as seductive, but psychologically desirable. The why is simple. Such a woman is free of the contamination of bitterness and cynicism that the failures of experience would rot upon such a woman. These psychological aspects are the predominant culprits responsible for spoiling a woman's femininity. There is little feminine that can remain feminine in the presence of distrustful cynicism and vitriolic bitterness. Such women find themselves unloved, condemned to loneliness, for they reek of repugnant undesirability. In essence, the more worn and experienced a woman becomes, the less feminine she becomes whilst a more battle-scarred and experienced man becomes more masculine. This is symptomatic of toughness, for toughness is a masculinizing procedure. It is thus I must make an observation. It does indeed appear that men become more masculine with time and sufficient hardship. Antithetically, women, less feminine. Therefore, it stands to reason that toughness is conducive to masculinity, whilst detrimental to femininity. It is in my estimation that men not only prefer young women for their more nubile bodies, but additionally for their more innocent, and so feminine, disposition. This perhaps goes some way in explaining the feminine obsession with maturity. For mature women are, physically, oft perceived less desirable than the immature. Diametrically, an immature man is a markedly lower desirability than a mature one. What's good for one is not good for the other. It seems to be the nature of gender and biology itself to impose different measures of desirability upon men and women. Without these differences, there cannot be union. Yin-yang is necessary to maintain the balance needed for love to flourish. Women being yin, men being yang. When we try to reverse yin and yang so that women become masculine and men feminine, monogamous love fails to flourish. Indeed, 
It seems the position of yin and yang within the gender duality are static impositions. This leads to my next point of estimation. I do believe that the fundamental reason the societies of the world have always tried so hard to protect and provide for their women in a manner of care that is all but absent in nature to their respective men is due to something of a matter of instinct which seeks to preserve the spiritual femininity of women with an inherent understanding that the failure to protect women from the world and its evil would lead to masculinization of their disposition and thus rather tragically the irrevocable loss of their femininity for not enough new girls can be born and protected sufficiently from their older counterparts to replace the entire female demographic with women of femininity. It would seem that societies on some fundamental level have realized, perhaps not always in a way that they are conscious and eloquent enough to articulate, that femininity in and of itself carries a certain intrinsic value that is necessary for the sustenance and self-preservation of a society. And it is this value that is to be protected and sustained. These societies realize that subjecting women to the same kind of pressures that men are subject to would cause them to lose their femininity along the way. And such women would better benefit society by retaining their femininity, rather than sacrificing it out of necessity in the emulation of man. For if society should forfeit femininity, demanding women fend for and coarsen themselves with the ugliness of survival, the very society reliant upon those who would maintain it would feel the tremors of emancipation as the feminine spirit is forcefully eviscerated from the societal psyche, leaving nothing but a collection of beings who strive to be manlike in its wake. Without the counterbalance of gentle and demure femininity to complement the assertiveness of traditional masculinity, any affected society would foster detached apathy through competition within its citizenry rather than inclusive empathy through community. Femininity is not just a gift to women, free of the shackles of responsibility that define manhood and the accompanying economic struggle that brings, but likewise a gift to men also, who would confide in and find emotional solace within the spirit of their lover's femininity, expressing momentary vulnerability to the softest of souls in a way that only a man in a gape with a woman would dare. A woman who feels safe enough and looked after enough is feminine in the most natural and charming way, momentarily carefree as she lets her guard down. She is a happy woman, a sweet woman, a kind woman, and perhaps most importantly to our humble species, an attractive woman. Rarely do women get to experience this type of innocence anymore, as the forces of feminism masculinize them into perverse hybrids. Women composed of the worst that femininity and all her flaws has to offer, whilst likewise borrowing the very worst that masculinity has to offer. Educated to never let their guard down in the face of oppression, be this evangel preached directly through activism or indirectly via the harshness of the workplace and the economic machine that it serves. Today's women face emancipation from femininity, like their fellow men do from masculinity. Sold a narrative that their inherent disposition is incompatible with the gender identity that the prevailing ideology would demand of and subscribe to them. Just how can the feminine continue to exist within the modern world when it is psychologically beaten out of women on a day-to-day -day basis? How can women be kind, caring, and sensitive when they must work in the world of business, a masculinizing, albeit sociopathic, world of margins, deadlines, quotas, targets, bottom lines, and politics? 
You see, the workplace itself undermines the cultivation of femininity. The hardened woman is but a feeble caricature of the ideal man. Should she be stripped of her femininity via the hallways of heartbreak, the glass table of the boardroom, or perhaps an amalgamation of both, such a woman is a walking emanation of all the ugliest that masculinity has to offer, and with none of its perks. For she learns the ugliest of masculinity along a pilgrimage for personal conquest, rather than learn it in whole in the way that only a boy who seeks to become a man can. She does not learn the nuances of masculinity, its duty, its honor, its burden, or its inherently biological need to protect and provide, and thus forth. And so, such a woman imposes herself ruthlessly and demandingly, without thought nor care for those she imprints her apathy on, belittling the men she hates along the way with vapid, deep-seated hatred, corrupting fellow women in her wake, imploring that they too sacrifice their femininity under the guise of motherly advice in the promotion that her younger counterparts become like that which she has become, a caricature of a man, a woman who emulates the worst of masculinity without embodying any of its finer or more nobler traits. Such a woman is a parasite, wondering what value she can take from those around her rather than what value she can add. She is psychologically unlovable to the desires of man, and yet some remnant of femininity remains. She craves to be loved, despite the impossibility such a task proves to be. It's hard to love a monster, and men do not love monsters like women do. They loathe them, even fear them. And in the most extreme of circumstances, they kill them. You see, masculinization affects women differently than it does men. Within men, it fosters growth and actualization. Within women, it fosters contempt, dissonance, and discontent, corrupting the very souls of who they are, stripping them of any desirability beyond the flesh, which, too, will eventually fade with age. Is there anything less feminine in the world than a ball-busting, cynical parasite devoid of the charms and femininity that men the world over have come to admire and cherish in women for eons and eons? No. No, there is not. And is the crucifixion of femininity being perpetuated as an affront to masculinity within modern ideology? Feminism containing the largest amount of estrogenic blood on its hands that is unilaterally killing feminine spirituality in favor that we sacrifice it on the altar of corporatism in an effort to equalize the feminine with the masculine. What this really means is to condemn the true and natural feminine spirit as weak, to redefine it with masculine ideals, reinforce those ideals, and then imprint those ideals onto society's men and women until they believe this perverse form of femininity is true femininity. Calling for the worship of this one brand of ideologically sanctioned femininity, which remains to be nothing more than a corrupt bastardization of the femininity that comes naturally to women who are free of Anglo-social engineering efforts. What feminism has failed to realize is that, although it has benefited many women superficially, it has done so at the cost of that which makes them truly women. That which makes them valuable to men beyond their bodies, the overlooked spiritual sense, the beauty that can be derived from their natural femininity. You see, feminism spoils femininity in the name of equality. Then the imbeciles who cause the damage are so incredibly ignorant, or incredibly intelligent, I cannot but tell the difference, 
as they seem to be at such a loss to understand just why men and women, but markedly women, are unhappier than they've ever been before. I do think perhaps one of the most abhorrent things in the modern female psyche is that of scorn. Scorn is something I consider to be a truly fascinating state of being. You see, scorn is a particular feminine flavor of revenge. It is effectively revenge on steroids with a feminine twist. Scorn is where the death of femininity within the soul of a woman rebirths itself vengefully in a manner of heightened sociopathy. Such a woman bears the physical hallmarks of the feminine form, but to her very soul is ravaged by the most detestable, despicable, and deplorable facets of both the masculine and the feminine. A scornful woman who derives her current state of being from the defining moment which initiated the destruction of her spirit's femininity is a woman who is emulating the traits of man, straying from the path of womanhood and crossing into the realm of manhood. Albeit such a woman will never truly be a man, for she will lack the logic of a man, the appearance of a man, as well as the burden and societal expectation of a man. And so thus at best, her bitterness leads to this type of quasi-woman, a caricature of a man, embodying but the worst traits of both the masculine and the feminine, leaving us with what can only be described as a hollow, hybrid monstrosity that is neither man nor woman in the truest sense of the word, regardless of its physical anatomy. You see, unlike men who can become better, stronger, and more attractive men by growing through their pain and thus amplifying their inherent masculine energy, women do not become better women with pain. They become more manlike, and thus they are stripped of that which makes them attractive to men to begin with. See, what is good for man, at least in this instance, is not good for woman. When women become hardened, it, rather poetically and quite ironically in its majesty, strips them of the very thing that makes them attractive beyond the realm of the physical to men in the first place. It emancipates them from their femininity. And to ensure a man truly loves a woman, and simply doesn't just view such a woman as a disposable fuck puppet at best, or a blathering idiot at worst, she must capture his interest psychologically and emotionally, not just physically. Because many women can capture the eye of a man, but only a woman of some real feminine energy and depth can capture the heart, and thus, devotion of a man. You see, femininity, like masculinity, must be cultivated. Although rather unlike masculinity, it mustn't be taught through pain, but through love. Puppy love is the exception. It is the one love that can be educational to men. Puppy love is the inevitable experience in which naivety prevails. Boys become men, and they learn firsthand through the misery of heartbreak and the cacophonous confusion of the indecisive female mind that the unilateral worship and adoration of the feminine form the willingness to be captivated in the beauty of the feminine form, be it from the sound of her voice, to the touch of the skin, or the smell of her sweat, is nothing but a futile and suicide-inducing endeavor. Men learn for themselves in their quest for masculinity that they must not worship women, but rather, that they must lead them. Women do not go on a quest for femininity. They are born with it. And oft, sacrifice it short-sightedly for power within the depths of delusion that makes up modern groupthink, only to realize in old age, once their beauty has faded, that they traded in their greatest intangible asset long ago.
Dominance and Submission The courage of a man lies in commanding. A woman's lies in obeying. Aristotle Number 1. Introduction It hardly feels worthy of mention, because it comes as naturally to oneself as a sky of blue or a blade of green grass. Yet in our age of dystopic social engineering and decadent artifice, it appears controversial that healthy romantic relationships between men and women take on a dominant, submissive dynamic. In a culture of toxic femininity, in which the feminine is made primary, the natural and healthy role of man and woman has been perverted to the extent the mere idea of man leading his woman is deemed offensive, if not at the very least backward and regressive in its stance. The intelligentsia of our time, ever unenlightened as they are, have placed their chips on the pillars of equality and obstinately refuse to reevaluate the foolishness of their pseudo-progressiveness. Number two, the dancing metaphor. Dancing has been used ritualistically as a preliminary step to courtship since time immemorial, the dance itself serving as little more than a finessed way of ascertaining a man's ability to take charge and a woman's to follow. Now imagine if a couple were silly enough to think that neither partner should lead nor follow, owing to their shared belief that equality negates a need for hierarchy. If their roles as dance partners was not identical, they would inhabit a state of inequality. But because dancing requires a leader and a follower, and our fellow dancers do not believe in inequality, they would quite simply fail to dance. The absurdity of their beliefs would effectively render them incapable of dancing. Extrapolating this to the dating market of today, much of the general dissatisfaction and unhappiness we see stems from this belief, or at the very least the incapacity for one or either sex to fulfill their roles as dominant and submissive. Be it that the man is an ineffectual and submissive leader, or the woman is an insolent, ball-busting sham of a follower. Neither is good relationship material for the other, and neither will do. For although dominance and submission is necessary for a relationship to take place, a woman's love is based upon respect, and her inability to respect a man she has been burdened to lead will ultimately conclude in her loss of love for him. As such, it falls to man to lead, not to woman. For no matter how much the feminine ego may covet leadership, it is spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and psychologically incapable of maintaining the dynamic in a mutually enjoyable and unexploitative fashion. It is within the narcissism and insecurity of women brainwashed by feminism who are uncomfortable in their femininity that we hear the cries of execration, denouncing masculine authority. And yet, ironically, it is within the petty jealousy of this infantilism she lies completely oblivious to the fact that leadership is not all fun and games, but a burden, and a cumbersome one at that. A dance in its physical elements foreshadows the optimal dynamic that should take place mentally and emotionally when men and women are couples. As such, dancing, much like relationships, is about complementation. The tyrannical social engineers, through their inversion of values, have our populace thinking that for a man to be dominant and lead his woman, is to oppress her, and that her consequential submissive following of him is tantamount to enslavement. But in matters of intersexual dynamics, these connotations are incorrect and misplaced. Number three. O oh, equality, wherefore art thou equality? As per feminist sociocultural influence, 
there has been a normalization of the rather perverse paradigm in which the woman leads, where each party is somehow equal in the most intangible, esoteric, and subjectivist of unquantifiable manners. And be it that this supposed equality is defined by the sentiment of the believer, who even knows what it looks like beyond the figment of the wildest imagination. For equality is a fiction, and all romantic relationships are hierarchically contingent upon a leader-follower dynamic to take form and function. Indeed, this absurd idea that each party is equal to the other, that nobody leads nor follows, but rather that each makes proposals to the other and that such a thing somehow works, is a dysfunctional, pervasive mimetic. The absence of hierarchy is chaos, and thus to aim for and idealize equality is to promote and usher in chaos. It is inconceivable to think how one could reach consensus within a democracy of two, for one must eventually concede to the authority of the other, and without concession, there is no basis for relationship, but merely a series of conflicts that lead to inevitable forfeiture and abandonment by whomever the most frustrated party happens to be. Antithetically, when one does concede to the authority of the other, equality is lost. As such, true equality is a notion, not a pragmatic relational methodology. Egalitarianism, much as it fails to operate as a functional social model, likewise fails utterly as a workable relational model. This makes sense, for the only thing that separates socialism from the equality of gender in romantic is scale and context. The same flawed and basic underpinnings are otherwise identical. As such, it seems foolish, if not outright insidious, to posit equality as an aspirational relationship model. For not only is equality a completely unobtainable end, but even were it obtainable, it would not yield the degree of relational satisfaction that a dominant submissive dynamic encompasses. For equality is unsexy. Number four. Love and lust are intrinsically unequal. Although sex is equally enjoyable, it is not equal in the roles that are performed, and neither is a relationship outside of the bedroom. In fact, if one wishes to get into the bedroom, they should be foreshadowing its dynamic outside of it. Neither man nor woman covets egalitarian liaisons, for it is within the very nature of man to want to dominate in the bedroom, as in the nature of woman to want to be taken in it. Unlike politics, dogma, and social ideology, sex does not lie. For the heart wants what the heart wants, and the purest manifestations of masculinity and femininity are laid bare in all their unfettered glory in the bedroom. Love and lust are not based on mutual respect. Love is based on mutual care. Lust on mutual desire. Women care and lust when they can respect man's hardness. Men lust for flesh, caring only when they are ensnared by a woman's softness. An equal woman is not a soft woman, nor a desirable woman. Nor a woman, a man of any real standing desires to protect. And so she is neither a woman he will endure to commit to, nor a woman in anything but the physical sense of the word. For by behaving as a man and trying to compete as one, she devalues herself in his eyes. It is as such the strategy of the wise woman to submit, complement, and enjoy the fruits and protection of her man, whereas it is the purview of the foolish woman to compete with him at every turn. Women of a masculine nature will never be truly desirable to men, 
in much the way men of a feminine nature will never be truly desirable to women. The difference between the two, of course, is masculine women can get laid, but feminine men can't. Where they are, of course, equal, is neither receives commitment from anyone either. Number five, he is to mold, she is to be molded. Many of you are privy to the fact that women are more easily influenced by their nation's culture, religion, family, and immediate surroundings than are men. Yes, men are likewise influenced by said things. My point was not to say they solely affect women, but rather that those of you who aren't so brainwashed as the common people realize women are on the whole more easily influenced. What is the reasoning behind this? Well, I lack the requisite desire to speculate too deeply on the matter, and nor do I wish to digress too far from the central thesis of the essay. Nonetheless, I believe it comes down to women's greater need for approval, an ability to be more fluid in character as a form of adaptation, and lastly, perhaps as a necessity for the capacity to perform the two prior functions, a diminished capacity and desire to employ logic. So now I have firmly established the reasoning behind my belief in women's greater malleability, I return to my original point. A woman is to be molded. A man is to mold. If a man is to find a woman when she is young, he can craft her into the woman he wants her to be. Be it that young women are ever pliable, and if mentally healthy, ever hopeful at their prospects of a future with a strong man who loves them. Much as I said in Women of Substance Are Made, Not Born, a good woman is the handiwork of great men ideally well-raised by a strong father, but at the very least young and receptive to dominant masculine governance. A woman cannot, try as she may, become the embodiment of what a man wants without her chosen partner having a hand in the matter. For her constitution is innately erratic, and as such, in the absence of a strong male figure in her life, she will in all likelihood fall prey to predacious dogma and sully herself. The value of a young woman extends beyond the appeal of her physical youth and fertility, although both are covetously desirable in and of themselves. It is her malleability to be formed into a woman who complements a man that is her main draw. Older women are, much to the dismay of men everywhere, not solely lacking in beauty, but largely irredeemable in that they lack the pliability archetypal of young women. Bitter older women, unable to secure a dominant alpha, who see a young woman coupled with a man, perhaps 10 or even 15 years her senior, have an instinct to shame the couple, more specifically the man. It is said by spinsters of ever-increasing opinionation that such men are no more than perverts, that they only covet a young woman's body and sexuality, and that if such men were as refined as they, they'd look to date someone more mature. Be it that maturity for women is little more than bitterness that erodes their femininity, the point of maturity is an entirely moot point, for women mature little in adulthood. These spinsters disguise their vitriolic bitterness as concern for the well-being of young women. But in reality, they are the jealous crabs in the bucket, scornful of the men who don't want them, jealous of the women who can get them. The man must act upon and mold a woman more than she does him, for if the woman is to act upon and mold the man, she will create something she finds abhorrent. More simply and explicitly stated, a woman will mold a man into someone she despises, but a man will mold a woman into someone he loves. Number six, faith, trust, risk, 
hope. A man does not want to waste time trying to mold an unmoldable woman, in much the way a moldable woman does not want a dominant man to abandon her. Man must be careful, for the more he invests, the more he loves, and the more he loves, the more he is prone to holding an unworthy and toxic asset. Likewise, women too must be careful. For if a man of dominance does not wish to intimately mold her in his paternal patience, he will not commit, and will as such subsequently abandon her. It is only wise that men and women alike are discerning when seeking to cultivate a healthy, sustainable, masculine-dominant and feminine-submissive dynamic. For there are women who feign submissiveness in much the way there are men pretending to be dominant. Likewise, it bears mentioning the insecurities of women are no large secret, and it is equal parts ego in so much as it is fear that if a woman is to submit to a man, the man in question may exploit his influence over her to her detriment. It is her desire to yield, and yet her simultaneous fear that should she yield, she will irreparably harm her emotional well-being. This is why trust is so integral and must be fostered with great benevolence and might in order to be created and sustained. Trust is not an easy thing, but a woman cannot truly submit until she trusts a man sufficiently not to abuse his power over her. When the young woman is around the right man, she has it within the depths of herself, irrespective of how dysfunctional she may be to yield and give herself to a sufficiently dominant man. The older woman's undesirability lies in her inability to cultivate this dynamic. Betrayed beyond redemption and hurt too much previously, her inability to trust, place hope in a strong man, and yield to him makes her a non-option to the most dominant of men. Dominant men evaluate the concerns of their women. Dominance is not tyrannical in so much as it is paternal. Such a man rewards and disciplines, but does not do so mercilessly and without reason but rather as a response to insolence and good behavior. Trust is integral to the dominant-submissive dynamic. For if a man is not benevolent enough to be righteous in the exercise of his discipline, he will unduly punish, and thus needlessly ostracize the woman he is partnered with. It is vital a woman's fears are assuaged, whilst her uppity up front is simultaneously quashed. Such a thing is achieved through sheer mastery of dominance, that is, knowing when to punish, knowing when to reward, and knowing how to encourage that which is deemed productive and good in a woman. It is a delicate balance that must be practiced, and yet, once it is attained, each party is all the better for it. Number seven, in closing. It is man's responsibility to lead, and woman's to follow. For man is drawn to feminine submission in much the way woman is drawn to masculine dominance. This basic premise is itself the very basic building block on which attraction is formed, and whether knowingly or unknowingly to those involved, all healthy, happy relationships operate upon this very foundation. To conflate masculine dominance with oppression is a grossly disingenuous mischaracterization of the functional order between man and woman, and it is with the greatest of sadnesses we see such an egregious idea adopted with ever-fermenting commonality. Shit tests ad infinitum. She will never stop testing you for weakness. To be crude, and for lack of a more suchant language, women are what I'd consider to be perpetually, biologically insecure. 
They are always thinking in the back of their heads, what if I've made a mistake? It is this constant need for romantic reassurance that causes them to rigorously shit-test their men. On a seemingly primal level, women are utterly obsessed with feeling safe, both emotionally and materially. And so, will thusly test their boyfriends or husbands to see if he still has what it takes to make them feel safe. Women do not rigorously shit-test their men out of malice, but merely out of insecurity, out of a need to feel protected out of a nagging sense of insecurity that they just need to make sure they have made the right choice and are still in a relationship with a man who is badass. They will wear their men down with their insecurity, self-sabotaging the relationship they have with him, seeking affirmation of his strength by acting out to see how he will handle the situation. The feedback gained from seeing how he handles shit, thusly, allows her to reevaluate her opinion of him to deduce if he is still the strong man she originally fell in love with, or if he has become weak and thus an obsolete romantic artifact in sore need of replacement. The psychological pressure from a woman's shit tests on a man's psyche, repeatedly and over a period of a relationship, may be the very cause, in all its sheer irony, for a strong man to become a shell of his former self, the very thing women despise. How or why such a man became weak is irrelevant to her. All that is relevant to her is if the man she is with is strong or not. That is her fixation. As far as she is concerned, if she was so easily able to make him weak with her mind games, then he's unworthy of her, period. Female nature is utterly and brutally ruthless in this way. Some would even argue sociopathic. Indeed, what men perceive to be beautiful almost always comes with many a hidden condition attached. The incredible prerequisite that he will shoulder all and any burden on her behalf. As soon as a man can no longer give a woman that safe feeling, she will leave him and find a guy who can make her feel safe. She will then rewrite history in her memory to say the man she's leaving was always a pussy and that he failed in his duties to her. She will paint him as the bad guy, so that it makes it easier for her to branch swing to the next guy without feeling bad or having any sense of personal responsibility for it. She has to demonize him and paint herself as the victim within her own mind to allow herself to carry on without hating herself. It's easy to wrong a man she has convinced herself is the bad guy, but a conscience makes it all but impossible to wrong such a man despite his shortcomings if she were to cast herself in the role of antagonist rather than he. She needs him to be the bad guy so that she can move on. As far as she's concerned, it's his fault she lost interest in him, regardless or despite if he did everything in his power for her. It's always the man's fault in the mind of a woman. She wants a man she can't change, but she tries to change him as a form of counterintuitive test of his strength. And if she succeeds in changing a man into someone who is no longer dominant, she will grow to hate what she has made of him. In a way, one could say women use masculinity up in this manner. Going from one relationship to the next, weakening a man until he is no longer attractive, and then when he has become too weak from his love for her, in her disgust and repulsion of what she has made him, she moves on to another man, only to again repeat the tortuous process. Jumping from one man to the next until she finally comes upon a man who she is incapable of compromising in such a manner. The immovable rock. This is the man who she will ultimately fall for. 
To women, these are the men of commodity, the ones that can be relied upon, the ones worthy of their love. These are the kinds of men who realize that men aren't allowed to fall in love the way that women are. As men, we can never just love a bitch. Love and emotional indulgence are luxuries reserved for the realm of women. It is this which is their ultimate privilege, despite their seeming obliviousness to such a rule of attraction. If we, as men, are to indulge in the same emotions that women do, and let them grow to the intensity that our women do, to let them take hold of us and weaken us, we will ultimately lose the girl and become unattractive to her. In stark contrast, if a woman falls in love with a man and lets her feelings go and loses a part of who she is to that, then it's fine. The relationship will not fall apart. The man won't lose attraction to her because she shows weakness. In fact, he may love her more for appreciating who he is, as it is the ultimate form of endearment that nearly all men long to feel. Women can show weakness and be sexy, but men cannot, even when such a woman is begging to see that weakness so she can feel connected to you. It is always the burden of man not to give in to such sugar-coated duplicity. If a man is to allow himself to fall in love to the extent that he starts to lose who he is independent of that woman and her love for him, he starts to be perceived as weak, and it's game over for him. Women want you to fall in love with them, but not so much so that you don't make them feel safe anymore. They want to be loved, but as a man, if you fall in love and allow that to change who you are, to be overwhelmed by them and allow them to erode your identity, you no longer remain attractive. To keep a woman, you must remain everything you were when she found you, despite everything, despite a tirade of emotional manipulation manifesting itself as shit tests. You see, with women, it's not you in and of yourself that they're attracted to, it's your masculinity and how that makes them feel which they find attractive. The esotericism of dominance is what triggers and captivates female attraction. Its absence will have her discard you in search of a new source of dominance. The wholly irrational thing about this whole sordid ordeal is that you cannot properly love a woman and let them all the way into the fiber of your being without such a love directly translating into psychological vulnerability. Agape inherently elicits vulnerability. Women desire a connection with that vulnerability, while simultaneously feel contempt for that vulnerability when it becomes prominent enough to translate into weakness. Of Love and Relationships Sacrifice and Leadership Contrary to the popular woe-is-me victim narrative that today's blue-pilled men and women spew, being a man is far more difficult than being a woman. As a man, more is expected. You have nobody to lean on emotionally, and your gender can't be used as a politically correct get-out-of-jail-free card. This is the way it has always been. And in today's age of progressive, superficial egalitarianism, in spite of all the rhetoric, things are no different. Beneath the surface level that society dedicates itself to reinforcing, we are all the same animals we were a thousand years ago. For men, relationships are not an exercise in which he attaches himself to another. No, for you, see it as he who is latched onto, not she. Men are humanity's sacrificers. They do the things that nobody really wants to do but need to be done, like working in waste management plants and getting drafted. Now, 
men in love are often happy to sacrifice due to an intrinsically deep-rooted provider instinct. However, it is this very instinct which is often exploited to man's unenviable self-detriment. And thus it is important for man to recognize his vulnerability and self-regulate it accordingly. Happy wife, happy life has got to be the most idiotic, misguided figure of speech to have ever been immortalized in the mimetics of the societal consciousness. Happiness flows downwards, not upwards. In order for her to be happy, it is you, the man, who must be happy first and foremost. If you are not happy, you will struggle to make her happy. This means even in sacrifice for her, or what you consider to be the greater good of the relationship, you must be enthusiastic. You cannot be begrudgingly forced to sacrifice by the parameters set out by the social contract. Your sacrifice for the significant woman in your life must come from a place of altruism, and therefore be consensual rather than mandated by law or convention. You see, it is laborious sacrifice stemming from obligation rather than love which leads to the growth of contemptuous discontent for your woman. An indentured leader, the discontent sacrificial laboring lamb, is a bad leader. For truly, in the most candidly lucid judgment of the word leader and all it entails, he amounts to anything but such. Most emphatically, he is but a unit of labor resigned to the financial servitude of a discontented woman who enjoys the fruits of his labor, whilst to some degree detesting him. He foolishly believes that by merit of his labor alone that he is worthy of a woman's respect, and so by extension, her love. He believes this wrongfully. No matter how much he earns in the material world, such a gentleman will never be perceived by her as a man who is lovable in the immaterial. In the absence of any fabulous wealth on her part, he is but a talented personal wallet, the walking ATM, the fabled beta bucks. It is by his lack of ability to lead that he remains incapable of inspiring her love. And so by extension of that, the respect that genuine female love for a man is based upon. She stays with him because doing so continues to bring her material benefit as mandated by the law of default. For a woman to sustainably love a man with any measure of depth, he cannot solely provide material benefit, but likewise he must provide immaterial benefit. In TRP lingo, that's the alpha provider. He commands the emotional excitement and lustful longing of the alpha archetype whilst being able to provide the stability and security of the beta male work drone. Add unconditional loyalty to the equation, and this is the epitome of what women seek in the sexual marketplace. The woman's unicorn. The knight in shining armor. Putting your own needs first. If you can't create and manage your own happiness, how can you be expected to inspire hers? A man must look after himself before he takes it upon himself to look after a woman. The express responsibility that comes with romantically associating with a woman all but demands it. Foolish men in their naivety rally to placate the unending demands of the boundary-pushing woman, whilst wise men concentrate first and foremost on pleasing themselves. They do not pedestalize the needs of the woman above their own. A man who is pleased with himself is in the position to give the woman with whom he associates the option to accept how he does things or to take a proverbial hike and take her chances out on the dating market. Often, out of sheer respect for putting his foot down, 
and the sensationalism of the tingles that such assertiveness elicits, she chooses to do things his way. That, ladies and gents, is the basis of makeup sex. For men, in relation to women, there are few needs other than ensuring a promise of sexual exclusivity that cannot be otherwise provided by an inner circle of male friends. Relational intimacy and emotional closeness with women does indeed have a certain appeal to various men, but it is hardly the necessity for men that it is for women. Rather, perhaps much to man's own romantic disappointment, it is simply something to be indulged in from time to time, much like alcohol consumption and recreational drug use. A man who indulges in such vices too often gets irreversibly fucked up. Indulging in too much emotional closeness with a woman is likewise a vice, for it has the propensity to make man weak. This makes him pliable. And from there on, we encounter the slippery slope of female contempt for male weakness, which begins to manifest and ultimately undermine the health of the relationship. Based on this line of reasoning, such activities should be indulged in sporadically to assure her of your emotional fidelity rather than form the basis of your relationship. For women, association with men is necessary, for they derive much of their self-worth based on the man, or men, they are publicly associated with. Their life is but one continuing stream of social media updates which pertain to their relationship status. A single woman is an unhappy woman looking for a new man to fill the void in her insatiable appetite for high-value male validation, whilst a single man is simply looking to get his end away and nothing more. For women, emotions come before sex. For men, sex comes before emotions. The Center of Her World As a leader, you are the center of her world. To be crude, you are the host, not her. You are the basis for the relationship. You must be the rock in her storm. This means that everything stems from you and is centered on your ability to deliver. Although in her tirade of demands, it will off seem to onlookers as if it is she who is the focal point rather than you. She isn't. And if you make the naive mistake of allowing her to become the focal point, you can be rest assured that the relentlessness of her emotions will ravage everything the two of you have built shredding up your little social contract in the process. Everything fundamental to the survival of the relationship is based upon you, your strength, and the amount of value that you bring to the table. You are the rock in her storm. Any value that she brings is largely quite secondary and oft perfunctory to that which you bring. In a healthy relationship where you lead, she will be a reflection of your wishes and decisions. She will be malleable. For you are the captain of the ship, and she the obliging first mate. This is the natural order. It is the way that things must be in order to ensure some measure of functional cohesion and relational happiness. When people do not have set roles, the ensuing power struggle leads to competition and destroys any chance of social cohesion. Brifault and Value Exchange it is Brifolt's law which states that for the female of the species to engage in continued association with the male, she must be sufficiently convinced that he will continuously provide value. If he could, but now cannot, e.g. he became terminally ill, she will move on and replace him with a man who can. The implication that can be drawn from this behavior is that she relies on you in more saturated concentration than you do her. Anything you rely on her for, 
or at least in the context of a functional and committed union, will be secondary and lesser to that which she relies upon you for. She sucks your dick and makes sure the house is clean. You stabilize her emotions and bring home the bacon. It is this value disparity which ultimately makes male commitment valuable, and likewise highlights why men are the gatekeepers of relationships and not women. As women bring less to the table, their commitment is worth less than man's. As men expect less from and derive less benefit from continued association with women than vice versa, female commitment is less valuable than man's. In matters of continued association, by merit of being female, she is infinitely more selfish than you are. She does not have the provider instinct that you do, and she has far, far more needs than you, too. The modern-day rhetoric of independent women is nothing but an ironic farce. You see only a group of people who are so utterly dependent on another group, and both their pride and cognitive dissonance assert the opposite as emphatically as possible, hoping that if they repeat it loudly enough, it will become true. You see, in each instance where a woman has brought forth more immaterial benefit than the man, she will over a number of weeks, months, or perhaps even years, grow increasingly disgusted by him. She will deem him weak, undesirable, beneath her. And as she concludes this, her once burning love fades as it is crushed by the darkness growing out of decadent disrespect. You see, female love, as inherently pragmatic and conditional as it is, is based primarily upon respect for power, and so by extension of that, value generation. Where a woman brings forth more material benefit than the man, the man becomes keenly aware of the potential power imbalance her wealth is capable of creating. It's certainly not something that is an asset to the relationship, if anything. It gives the first mate the power to disobey and disrespect the captain, even when this is not in the best interest of the relationship. We have established since long in the manosphere that female-led relationships are ultimately doomed to failure, and a rich woman's money grants her the freedom to circumvent your logic and your will should she so choose. It is to this end that high-earning women ostracize themselves from men. They activate male aversion by robbing him of his provider role, while simultaneously undermining their own capacity to love by reducing the significance of his role. You see, in dependence, there is a certain appreciation. And it is within appreciation of men that women find a fundamental ingredient necessary for love. Appreciation easily becomes admiration. The Power Struggle of Value Exchange Within the dominion of the physical, sexually, it is you who acts upon her. But relationally, in the domain of the mental, it is she who acts upon you. The why pertaining to this dynamic is quite simple. As already mentioned in paragraphs prior, she has more needs than you, and thus she depends, nay, expects you to fulfill them. As her significant other, those are the responsibilities that come with unrequited access to her vagina. Of course, should you renege on your responsibilities, you will be framed and shamed as the devil incarnate. Antithetically, should she refuse you sexual access, her body, her choice, the social contract mandates you cannot rape her for not holding up her end of the bargain, and so thus you are left powerless with no option but to threaten departure. Sex is truly the female dominion of power, and it is in this relational battlefield where sex is constantly weaponized, dangled, implied, used as bait, and retracted 
to solidify and ensure your promise of commitment, whilst her promise of sexual access remains tenable and retractable. Many, many women are conscious of the power they have in simply saying, I'm not in the mood, when they are withholding sex as a mechanism to manipulate their man into bending to her will. Naturally, this is the go-to nuclear option that women use to manipulate their partners. The male response should, of course, be dread game. Bar any tremendous sexual prowess on your part, it is in the female nature to surreptitiously reduce your sexual access while she continues to maximize your level of personal investment into her well-being. Effectively, women use sex, or the implication of sex, strategically to ensure their self-interest in relationships with men. For her to crave your sex and lose the ability to leverage it over you, you must be able to own her like your name is Christian Grey. Women gain more from relationships than men. For self-respecting men, relationships are not exercises in which you burden another with your baggage. Likewise, they do not lead to economic betterment and social mobility. For men, typically marry downwards or across rather than upwards. Any man that's ever heard other married men talk has surely heard of the what's yours is ours and what's hers is hers double standard. You see, for a man, a relationship is a morbid attempt at controlled chaos, an exercise in the most burdensome leadership. It is something society encourages because society derives benefit from it. Of course, society derives benefit from all male sacrifice which is why, of course, society has always encouraged men to do things that aren't necessarily in their best interest. By my use of the word society, I of course refer to women at large, the female hive mind. So aside from peer pressure, why do we even do it? Why do men have relationships with women when they can enjoy the best a woman has to offer without making a promise of commitment? Men have their various reasons. For some, it's a fear of loneliness. For others, it's the dream of being a patriarch that rules over his own family. A good, high-value, well-trained woman being essential to such an endeavor, rare as they are. For the men still plugged in, it's basically an archaic, idealistic notion of undying love served to you by the societally entrenched meme of the one. This is why, in part, in contrast to women, as men, we are far more averse to having deep romantic relationships. Women have nothing to lose from securing a man's commitment, but for a man, it is a risk, a calculated risk. Our risk is higher, because by merit of having more to give, we have more to lose. This is why it is so that in matters of romantic relationship with women, the foolish man endures a relationship, whilst the wise man indulges one. Divergent Missions It is natural for a feeling of mere indifference to exist between men, but between women it is actual enmity. This is due perhaps to the fact that odium figulinum, in the case of men, is limited to their everyday affairs, but with women embraces the whole sex, since they have only one kind of business. Arthur Schopenhauer Number 1. Introduction where testosterone coalesces with creativity, the engine of civilization hums on the fuel of male ambition. Civilization is man's grand project, an expression of his thought form and aspiration. 
And although from time to time atypical women will make spontaneous contributions, its distinctly masculine texture remains dominant. Man has a mission beyond the scope of the home. It is merely the scale of vision and ability to actualize that differs among men. Indeed, we owe modern civilization to men who kept firm to their life's work and executed their vision. For it is women who bring us into existence, but men who make said existence glorious. All men have missions, but it is within the provision for humanity through the development of civilization that the greats illuminate the depth and scale of said ambition. Women are concerned with matters of people. People are women's business. Reproduction with a powerful man is their life goal. They are simple. Where women's ambitions are concrete, some may even say mundane, man's potential is infinite. This is not to say that men do not seek to reproduce, but rather that babies and hearth do not constitute success for a man in quite the way they do for a woman. A woman who achieves these goals actualizes her femininity. Her mission is complete, and so rarely will she aspire beyond it. Men, on the other hand, do not find completion in family life. It is important to them, but it does not encompass the sum of their being. Men do not live for relationships, family, and people in quite the way that women do. Whilst the social fabric is the beating heart of all that matters to women, it is but a puzzle piece in a grander picture for men. Being the architects and providers of humanity, man's focus is expectedly different. The scope of his existence is wider, and thus the extent he must be willing to go more extreme. To play it safe as a woman brings success, but for a man, it elicits naught but failure. A woman married with children is the apotheosis of feminine success, but a married man with children is not. Even should a man not marry nor reproduce, the need for a mission persists. For whilst woman is self-defined by her relationships, man defines himself by his achievements. Number two, mission before woman. Because woman's sex drive is far weaker than man's, on appearance it seems the pursuant man is needier. Being more lustful, he demonstrates greater interest, bestowing woman the power of choice through function of her lower libido. However, the female relies on man's greater sex drive for every iota of power she has, the great bluff being that because she lusts less, she needs less. In reality, because she lusts less, she is able to extract what she really needs, a man's protection, provision, and emotional support. A man should marry a craft before even thinking to marry a woman. She should be his second love, lest he ruin her with obsessive worship. For women, the opposite is healthy. A woman undedicated to her man is an unworthy partner. And so, should she emulate man in dedication to the abstract, she will assuredly make a poor lover and mother. Men are not women, and women are not men. And this difference is reflected in all things. The man who worships his wife mimics the feminine, whilst the woman who worships commerce mimics the masculine. A successful man is a man who makes something of himself whereas a successful woman is a woman who manages to monopolize said man. And so it is from within this dynamic we see the differences between the male and female agenda. Because the female is more dependent, her preoccupation is with the male. Whereas because the male is more independent, his preoccupation is with creation. 
Poetic, then, is it not, considering women create life, that men are the ones preoccupied with creation in life? Number three, man is her mission. It is unhealthy for a man to live his life in dedication to a woman, for better and more stable dividends are reaped from creation and commerce. It is within the busyness of productivity a man acquires the distance necessary to be more craved by his woman, a boon rather than a detriment to the relationship, despite her protestations to the contrary. A woman will always complain when a man has a mission greater than her, for it deprives her the flow of attention she requires to optimally function. Yet in the presence of an indentured man, she will complain of a lack of ambition, an absence of mission. A woman's complaints bear little if any merit, for in much the way crying is the way of babies, complaining is the way of women. An unambitious man elicits complaint just as much as an ambitious one, for dissatisfaction is emphatic and characteristic of the feminine psyche. Where man works the world, woman works man. There is not necessarily premeditation nor malice in this regard, but rather simply, it is woman's nature to use man. A woman need not work the world when she can work a man. And so where woman is man's desire, man is less commonly a desire than he is a tool. Truly, then, the assured commitment of a powerful man is woman's greatest objective. For whether she engages in business or academia, nothing external serves as an adequate substitute. A woman who rejects this and plays the game of men past peak fecundity is either an unsuccessful woman unable to accomplish her mission or an outlier with masculine yearnings. Number four, compromise and womanly worthiness. Relationships with women require compromise, for women are extremely emotional and thus burdensome to contend with. Their nature is to be insecure, and so they are predisposed towards the theatrical and the petty. A man must as such be discriminant in discerning a woman's worth, for few are worth the compromise they all demand. Where a woman encumbers a man more than she supports him, she is redundant, an anchor on the ship rather than the caretaker that would maintain it. Naturally being a woman, she has needs, and her needs are many. But if said neediness is to manifest itself as a transgression of her man's boundaries, as an imposition upon his sovereignty and need for solitude, then she is more hassle than she is worth. Idealistically, man and woman live happily, making calculated compromises to ensure the union is not undermined by the desires of the individual, micro-collectivism. By definition, then, a relationship with a woman requires giving up a measure of freedom in order to assuage the demands of the feminine. It is my contention that due to the debilitation of a woman's pressing emotional wants, a relationship almost always serves her, whilst it is a riskier affair for man, for the likelihood he receives equal or greater benefit is improbable. A woman is oft a burden posing as a partner, and many a man is fooled as such, when in reality, she is almost always little more than a dependent. The question that then naturally follows is, will she be enjoyable enough to be worth the burden she will impose? Sex can be, and often is, withdrawn without notice, and so a man cannot rely on either quality or quantity of sex as an indicator of womanly worth. And even were sex a certainty, such narrow scope in the evaluation of woman would lead to blunderous mate choice. Man must thus ask himself if the woman in question has a penchant for drama, 
and if she is interesting or merely fixated with relationships, social happenings, and idle consumption. Generally speaking, the more substantive and less dramatic she is, the worthier and more enjoyable she is. Number five, in closing, relevant reading. Women pitch, men invest. A single woman is one who cannot secure investment. A single man is one who will not provide it. This alone should explain the disparity and anxiety between the single man and the single woman. A single man is anxious only should he be looking to prove his worth. For such a thing is the product of inexperience, the manifestation of the male ego eager to prove itself. It is a rite of passage for a young virgin man, a rite of passage that if unfulfilled becomes the central focus that consumes him to a point of insanity. And yet, regardless of a woman's level of experience, she will be deeply anxious if she finds herself single. Socially, having a boyfriend is imperative in woman's world, for women who cannot get commitment are seen as lesser by their peers who can. Evolutionarily, women's life mission is marriage and babies. Thus, if she is incapable of achieving either, she's not a real woman. The reason low-tier women who cannot secure commitment conceive children from one-night stands is that facilitated by the welfare state, a woman can part-actualize her femininity by having a child. To be a mother lends a woman status. It makes her more of a woman. And so it is only through this lens of self-centered feminine egotism that any remote sense can be made of women consciously deciding to raise a child without its father. This is but one example of the extremity a woman will go to in order to actualize an aspect of her femininity. As a point of note, when manning up is used to manipulate men into committing themselves, it is no more than projection. Because the woman brings less to the relationship than the man, her commitment is objectively less qualitative. And thus, among other factors, it is this quintessential value disparity that drives her eagerness and cements his reticence. The rule is as such. Where woman believes greater benefit is derived from commitment than it is not, she presses for it. Where she believes the benefit lesser, she does not. Whilst not strictly logical, woman is pragmatic. This is why a younger woman is typically more relationally adverse than an older woman. Greater bargaining power. Whereas for man, his investment is near always significant, irrespective of age, and thus his reluctance remains consistent. From a solipsistic frame of reference, she is not a real woman should she remain single and childless beyond her peak years. And so by her own standards, a man unaccomplished in this way is equally unactualized. Such is the folly of women holding men to feminine metrics of achievement. It is, as I said at the beginning, although heart and home are human wants, they are more emphatically feminine wants than they are masculine. Ruminations on double standards. When hypocrisy is a character trait, it also affects one's thinking, because it consists in the negation of all the aspects of reality that one finds disagreeable, irrational, or repugnant. Octavio Paz. Number one, introduction. There is parallel advantage and disadvantage to living as male or female, for men are by and large deemed more credible, whilst the womanly form is more coveted. As such, if you are a man, the world is more likely to respect you than it is to desire or care for you. 
Whereas if you're a woman, the world is more partial to being desiring and caring of you than it is respecting. On some level, be it conscious or not, it would seem our fair species recognizes women as dependents and men as their guardians, treating each accordingly. Now on the surface, this sounds like men get a better deal. And within the infinite remit of ideological feminism and the intrinsicality of feminine self-pity, this is certainly what much of womankind believes, as she takes a perverse sense of pride in being the prima facie victim. Yet in reality, men's position comes with a burden, loneliness, and difficulty of life that is as equal parts alien as it is undesirable to the feminine. Number two, a protestation and petitioning. Womenly complaint makes it a common point of contention that there are matters in which by injustice of her womanliness she suffers gross disadvantage. And it is this line of thinking which serves as the foundation for feminist thought. Let it be clear, the root and core of feminism, that is, the psychological seed from which it is sprung, is the notion that one is inferior by merit of their sex, and that this inferiority is not the product of innate deficit, but of a systematic oppression that must be corrected for politically, economically, etc. For whether a woman identifies as a feminist or not, for as long as she perceives herself as unprivileged by comparison to man, she will, for all intent and purpose, behave in much the way a self-identifying feminist would. This is to state that although she may decline to call herself a feminist, all too aware the connotations of such a word bode poorly for her reputation, she is ailed by the same penis-envying inferiority complex that the most rabid and outspoken of feminist ideologues are. And yet as men, we consider complaining, irrespective of its justification or substantiation, to be hallmarks of the feminine character. For even if a man has good cause to complain, he is hard-pressed to do so. For the act of complaint fills him with a kind of unproductive self-loathing that appears not to plague the female. As such, when one is to complain without good cause, be it that man is remiss to complain even with good cause, he is filled with nothing but disgust for the caricatural pretensions of insolence attempting to pass itself off as justice-seeking. A man acts upon, he is not acted upon. Therefore, if he wants, he does. He does not wait, he proceeds. Should he deign to complain, there is little chance he will be helped, and even if he is, there is yet littler chance he could be helped whilst retaining his dignity. You see, whilst women are ailed by eternal dissatisfaction and a need to communicate this dissatisfaction in the petition that man will remedy her contemporary concern, man is ailed by extreme pride. As such, even when a man is truly worthy of help, he is as likely to request it as he is to receive it. And by that I mean... In much the way society is unconcerned with caring for man, man himself does not wish to be taken care of. A man's primary emotional concern is his pride, respect, but the corollary on which it rides. If a man cannot respect himself, he cannot expect others to. And therefore a man only requests help when he has no other option, be it that seeking help is the last thing he would look to do, and not the first. Rather than complain about the unfair, he will seek to rectify it through nothing but sheer volition of whatever means he has available to him. Man tries to help himself, and only after he has been massively unsuccessful in the endeavor will he attempt to seek assistance. For women, the principle is reversed. 
She is quick to seek help, but slow to help herself should she even attempt to do so at all. Naturally, exceptions abound, but as a general statement of observation, such a maxim should hold true. It is not man's goal to bask in the catharsis of emotional expungement and to petition others to do the bidding his emotions see fit, but rather to understand what is unoptimized and alter it so that it may improve. It is for this reason nagging has a strongly feminine connotation, be it that it is women who find all manner of things to gripe over as her insecurities are made fully manifest. For whilst a man changes the world via his hands, women change it by petitioning men. Men do and take pride in doing. When they're not doing, they're ashamed of their unproductivity. A woman's doings compose of influencing others to act on her behalf. Be it that it may, she feels no shame in complaining, and in actual fact feels she is only exercising her natural rights in doing so. Alas, irrespective of woman's social position, rich or poor, conservative or liberal, educated or uneducated, it is her nature to be dissatisfied with her station. And where she has little or zero problem, she will manufacture and amplify, purely so she may enjoy the catharsis of complaining and all its attendant attention. Number three, to act or be acted upon. Inherent, too, is the magnificent difference in the standard of responsibility each gender holds itself to. Almost as if by some cerebral echo of sex, a woman believes the world is acting upon her rather than she on it. Therefore, when unsatisfied, she infers her condition is the fault of something external to her. And be it that it is man who acts upon her sexually, it is man she holds responsible for her dissatisfaction. This brings us to a double standard that men dare not complain of and women care not to acknowledge. When a woman treats a man poorly, it is asked what he did to make her behave so unsightly. Yet should a man treat a woman poorly, it is hastily concluded he is a monster without further investigation. Women are given the benefit of the doubt even when they have done wrong, with justifications being sought to explain away their wrongdoing. No such instinctual courtesy is extended to men. This is a social privilege women benefit from most emphatically, to the extent that even in courts of law, their punishments are less punitive, should they even be punished at all. He is acting upon, and she is acted upon. This line of thought continues to reassert and perpetuate itself all around us, irrespective of the material facts. Womankind sees the double standards she does not benefit from, but is blind to those which she does, incorrectly believing in all earnest that she is most oppressed when she is in actual fact freer than her counterpart. She wishes to reform the social standards from which she does not benefit, be it that she may increase her liberty by limiting her social consequences, but she is without either concern or impetus for the reformation of double standards from which she derives pre-existing benefit. This is why women lament how unfair it is that their reputations suffer from promiscuity whilst man's benefits, but are oblivious to the fact that they enjoy a level of compassion and assumed innocence that is all but alien to men. Number four, respect versus desire. When a woman asks to be evaluated on the basis of her merit in the way a man is, she knows not what she asks for. She seeks greater respect and thus the recognition inherent to said respect but is blissfully unaware of the drawbacks that come with this. 
be it that were she to be respected in the way exclusive to man, she would no longer be cared for in the way exclusive to women. Women are objects of desire, retaining enough infantile aesthetic in adulthood to elicit the compassion and care the species feels for children. Whereas men are objects of success, that is, a man is to be evaluated on the sum of his utility and achievement. There is no cushion, no safety net for a man who falls too far into the abyss. Yet were he a woman, his decline would be cushioned and prevented by social and governmental support alike. Nobody fundamentally cares for man on the basis that he exists. This privilege is but the preserve of women and children. Rather, his position in the world is predicated on what he can produce and solve. And it is by living in accordance with this nature and having the fruits to show for it, a man comes into his own. Simply put, women covet the respect exclusive to men, but do not understand that the respect men receive is a substitute for the care they do not. That is, society does not fundamentally care for those it respects, in much the way it does not look to guidance from those under its care. When you look up to someone, you respect what they can do and what they have done but you don't care for their weaknesses nor their fundamental person, for if you did, you would pity rather than respect. And one may either benefit from the care of pity or the admiration of respect, but not both. For each form of love is mutually exclusive, the presence of one precluding the materialization of the other. An aspect of the negative feminine resents not being boss, And yet it is only because of her secondary role that she benefits from a compassion of care and empathy that men cease to receive after the infancy of boyhood. Indeed, people may respect men more than they respect women, but it comes at the cost of being cared about merely for existing and having the freedom to be vulnerable. Alas, focusing on what she doesn't benefit from whilst neglecting what she does, many a woman adhors being the second sex but she does so only because she doesn't realize she'd hate being the primary even more. The Choice The great danger for family life, in the midst of any society whose idols are pleasure, comfort, and independence, lies in the fact that people close their hearts and become selfish. Pope John Paul II Number 1. The Male Perspective, a Quandary To enjoy the decline, or to start a family, that is the question. And of course this is a problem unique to man, particularly those conscious and critical of the paradigm we occupy, for it is not a consideration that even crosses the threshold of consciousness in the archetypal drone. And yet unlike the drone who knows no quandary, who idly autopilots his way into an unremarkable 5-15 to year marriage that yields 2.1 children, the more enlightened man finds himself in the pivotal yet privileged position of making an informed choice about his future's course. Such a man is free to direct his fate, absent the demands of religious indoctrination or self-serving women. After all, should one of the most important decisions of a man's life be made by anyone other than the man himself? Does a man pressured and cajoled into starting a family do so on his own terms, or on the terms of those with a plan for him? With both reason of mind and heart of soul, the man free of spells and delusions can exercise his mental sovereignty by weighing up the risks and rewards of the lifestyle choices available to him, be that the life of a patriarch or the life of a bachelor. A self-respecting, free-thinking, and proud man should not be bullied into marrying 
by his religion, his family, nor the woman maneuvering to get a ring on her finger. A man should make this decision free of external devices and with full mental clarity, for a man should establish a serious relationship in much the way he would seek to maintain it. Therefore, it stands to reason that should a man be conjoled or duped into marriage and babies, that although it may initially fill the dissimulating woman with naught but estrogenic rejoice and maternal glee, such shadowy foundations do not bode well for their relationship's longevity. A strong man does not respond to shame. He acknowledges it for the manipulative transgression that it is, disregards it as folly, and continues to forge his path absent the mechanizations of such duplicity. The free man wonders which lifestyle choice would be in his best interest, and is he, no matter what he does, condemned to an unforgivable degree of heartache either way? If marriage leads to divorce and bachelorhood leads to childless loneliness, what's a man to do? After all, a choice between misery or loneliness hardly seems like much of a choice at all. 1A. The Patriarch's Problem If a man is to marry, there is reasonable fear the fresh legal supremacy his woman enjoys will disrupt the balance of power that previously maintained their relationship. The informed man is all too aware the legal privilege of the modern wife can be used to force him into domestic servitude, and that, legally speaking, the marriage hangs on a thread tied to a hovering sword that follows him wherever he goes. From the moment he has said, I do, a dangling sword of Damocles stalks him, scrutinizing his every action, primed to strike. Too many mistakes, and the sword falls, divorce initiated, financial and emotional chaos wrought. Now, of course, there is an imbecilic, ignorant argument to be made that not all women are like that. And indeed, this is true. Not all women will whimsically detonate a divorce bomb. And yet a wise man in his prudence must ask himself, is my woman like that? And then follow up this question with, if my woman is not like that, what is the likelihood she could become like that? To which the answer in all earnestness is a most pertinent, easily. If too much comfort is indulged, if too much is neglected or too much left to chance, the ruination of marital union is all but a certainty. A marriage is like a car hanging off a cliff. It requires the man driving to accelerate now and again to ensure the car does not tilt and fall into the ocean below. Just as it was in courting, in marriage, the burden of performance is man's to bear. If man fails in his capacity as husband, or is at least perceived to have failed, he loses everything. By contrast, if his woman is an abysmal failure of a wife, she gets a payday and a fresh chance. In today's society, a woman's marriage risk is minimal. And of course, this comes at the expense of man's being astronomical. Women do not fear marriage because they have no reason to. Men do because they have every reason to. A marriage's odds of success are merely improved, but still mightily unfavorable for man, even when the potential wife is of considerable quality. And so although it is not impossible to become a patriarch, it is a dangerous affair regardless of who is involved. This danger is neither explicitly the man nor the woman's involved fault, but rather the fault of a judicial system that makes marriage so costly to men. The success of a marriage is of course dependent solely on the parties involved, but what was once merely a monumental investment on the part of man has been perverted by the misandry of feminism into a monumental gamble. 
A sensible man is not a gambling man. He does not wager half his assets and his emotional stability on the odds of a woman's whim remaining pretty. No matter who is involved, this aspect remains the same. A man has no assurances nor protection from the state. In a worst-case scenario, the woman is protected and the man is left to rot. Idiots will marry blindly, and gamblers will marry brazenly, whilst sensible man will abstain, and the intelligent romantically delay. As such, it is a lazy and ill-cultured wife's prerogative to cash in the marriage whenever she deems fit. For if she and her husband are at odds, and it is too difficult, too cumbersome, and too taxing for her to compromise, she can force the man to leave, keep the home he labored for, and make off with much of his present and future wealth. 1b. The Bachelor's Problem The opposing side of the quandary is, of course, the lust for family and lineage, for one to not die childless and alone. The informed man wishes not to be ravaged by the effects of feminist marriage, and yet neither does he wish to be wrecked by the absence of companionship or children in his elder years. Where the patriarch fears divorce, the bachelor fears childlessness and loneliness. Although men are not as dependent on family as women for sanity, success, and happiness, they still value family. The reluctance to marry is as such a synthesis of a distrust in women married to a contempt for a misandric legal system. The bachelor is a man who values his freedom more than most, and thus the constraints, demands, and expectations inappreciatively thrust upon him by a wife hold no appeal. This does not mean such a man would not enjoy being a father, but rather that becoming one would mean giving up an inordinate degree of freedom to the mother. For the bachelor, a rat pack is his family replacement. Through the formation of a rat pack, a bachelor can assuage his loneliness and need for tribe. A rat pack is a small tribe of cohabiting, single, and childless men. Such an arrangement allows the group to fully indulge in the wealth and freedom of childless singledom without any of its accompanying loneliness. Nonetheless, the desire to reproduce is not so easily assuaged. Men sensitive to, and aware of, the nature of evolutionary biology feel they have a genetic imperative to reproduce. And thus the quandary presents itself. Is a man to enter an institution hostile to him so that he may build a family, or is he to enjoy the full succulence of his fruits and yet leave no worldly legacy behind? The artistic man may leave his creations, the academic man his research. But what of the layman? And are achievements acceptable substitutes for legacy in the absence of reproduction? This is a choice all informed men must make, and there is no right or wrong answer. It is my presupposition that most informed men will take full advantage of their extended fertility window and opt to settle down with a younger woman in middle age. I believe most informed men are willing to risk divorce in their elder years if it means they got to lead a good life before becoming a father. Number two, the female perspective, a prize. Women do not face the quandary that idiotic men shirk and informed men face. Women's marriage risk is minimal, and her fertility window is short. The nature of a woman's limited fertility is precisely why, once women have decided they want to settle down, they're frenetic to do so. This is in stark opposition to men who are happy to take their time and vet their mate more rigorously, particularly when dating older women who are circumspect by merit of their availability. 
The quaint poetry here, of course, is that the older the woman, the greater her sense of urgency. And the older the man, the more reluctant his urge to commit. Of course, fertility is only part of the equation. Men hold the keys to commitment, women to sex. If commitment, attention, and provision is what women value most, then men are the gatekeepers to womanly wants. And marriage is a jackpot in which she has bestowed an endless supply of these things. If a 50-year-old woman had the charm, sex appeal, and mental stability of her 20-year-old self, she'd be as leisurely and lackadaisical about the speed the relationship progresses at as the men her age are. Yet whether a woman can admit it to herself or not, she is intuitively aware that as she ages, her capacity to attract a top-tier mate decreases. A woman's power erodes with each passing year. And thus, like anybody all too aware of their depreciation, the cleverest attempt to leverage their power at its peak. The question of marriage is always a no-brainer for a woman, as I previously stated. This quandary lies solely in the jurisdiction of man. If a woman asked me, I am, should I get married? I'd say, yes, as soon as you can, and ideally no later than 26. Because marriage is a really good deal for women. For women, marriage represents something it scarcely does for men financial security, and psychological sanity. And although I do not write much in a manner conducive to a woman's viewpoint or need, it does not mean I don't understand the importance of marriage and babies to women. It is the life goal of all intelligent and sensible women to become wives and mothers, for scarcely can a woman achieve the happiness in business her man can, as to be a mother buzzing in the embrace of family is her highest calling. Family is where women derive emotional nourishment, for it gives them a sense of internal completion. And to honor her husband while suckling her young is in and of itself a most noble of goals. Number three, the differences between men and women in summary. Men get purpose from art and business, whereas women get purpose from the family. Not all men and not all women, but generally speaking. This doesn't mean men don't want family, merely that they need it less and a longer fertility window permits them to sensibly delay patriarchhood. Testosterone needs challenge. Estrogen needs comfort. This is why women are more relationship-oriented than men, for it provides the apex of their happiness, their very reason for being, to be desired and feel integrally vital in a family rich in love and abundance. Family is important to men, but so are aspects irrespective of it. A man's priorities are more evenly weighted than a woman's. If his family does not have an immediate need, rather than manufacture a need to fill, as a woman wanting to feel relevant will do, he will busy himself with commerce, resource acquisition, or art, an outlet for his masculine creativity that the wonderful yet splendid mundanity of family life does not provide. A woman, on the other hand, is lost without family. No matter how much she attempts to fill the void with art, business, or pets, she cannot help but feel a most profound sense of absence strike the core of her being. Whether she knows it or not, her very fiber yearns to be a wife and mother. And no matter her opinion of that, she is powerless to escape this most visceral of compulsion. Number four, the civilizational perspective, a crisis. The salvation of a crumbling civilization the very thing it needs to persist and replenish itself morally, intellectually, and socially is the very thing that has been poisoned to disincentivize man. 
the family. Deprive a nation of the nuclear family, and eventually you deprive a nation of its very existence. And it is the poisoning of women by feminism, in tandem with the hostility of family law, that is encouraging men to embrace the playboy lifestyle in record numbers. In an accelerating social breakdown, cocaine, whiskey, and hookers can seem like a smart choice to the live-hard opportunist. We cannot blame the men who shy away from their responsibilities as men, Christians, or whatever for not indulging the burden of patriarchy when said burden has been contorted to ensure man's life will almost certainly become a living hell should he be anything but perfect. When men conduct a cost-benefit analysis of the potential for marriage, and rightfully deduce the chance of success is not in their favor, and that a painless exit is all but unattainable, we cannot blame their aversion. It is easy to mount the entirety of blame on men and accuse them of immaturity and commitment phobia. But I believe many men are, at heart, family men. They are socially smart for avoiding marriage, but evolutionarily dumb for not reproducing. Many things in life are a trade-off, and this is by far one of the greatest a man will ever contemplate. The more men begin to put their own interests ahead of women's, the fewer number of children to be born, and the quicker our civilization collapses. So really, who is a betting civilization? The bachelor who hastens its decline, or the patriarch who slows it? Is there a way to reverse rather than merely slow the decline? Yes, I believe a reversion of family law to a pre-feminist state would be a great start. If the religions can take back marriage from the clutches of feminists, the corrupt family courts, and the parasitic divorce industry, then the family unit may yet be saved. But unless such judicial change takes place and gives men the peace of mind they need to functionally marry, I believe for better or worse, the decline of civilization and the bedrock it is built upon will continue at rapid pace. Number five, in closing, relevant reading. Without judicial reconciliation between what is in man's best interests and what is in woman's, men will continue to shun marriage, and society will, family by family, shrink and deteriorate with increasing pace. Give men incentive and legal assurances, and many more will be willing to take up the mantle of responsibility in what is already a thanklessly rewarding yet toilsome endeavor. The Art of Fishing The following article is a product of satire. When you get a woman, you learn one thing very quickly. They're like fish out of water. They never know what the fuck they want, so they just stare at you with a wide, fixated eye, flapping all over the deck until you make a decision. They claim to like one thing about men, but then react positively to the polar opposite of said claim. This propensity to counterintuitively undermine their words with their actions is a spectacle that has left many a man stood, jaw jar, thinking, what the fuck, for millennia. You see, it is the fish who contradict themselves for all to notice, with the underlying assumption that you will forgive and overlook their bullshit. Almost as if, when it's convenient for them, it's tacitly known in the subliminal that you shouldn't take a single word seriously. You should just get it. Let's give you a classic example of this in the form of the pervasive bullshit peddling that has been espoused by womankind since time immemorial. I like nice guys. The petite, prominently plump-assed, perky-titted 20-year-old says. But her behavior and track record, on the other hand, indicate otherwise. In fact, 
Ms. Perkytits only fucks nice guys once in a blue moon. Some of them wonder if the pity handjob they gave to their male best friend in the 12th grade counts. Of course it doesn't, and if she wasn't full of mercury, she'd realize this. Predominantly, she's a fish of the tuna variety, seen on the Discovery Channel to be enjoying a diet of asshole whenever she can get it. Why do you think she's full of mercury? Did she spin you that environmental trope about the ocean being contaminated where she swims and little old hers just looking for the right ship to come along? No. She's contaminated by all the ships she's jumped on. And if it is something wrong with the water, then why the fuck does she keep swimming there? What is it that causes this cognitive dissonance in her? The differential leap between her beliefs and actions? This is something the male mind has bewilderingly pondered throughout the passage of time in his dealings with women. You think it now. Your father thought it. Your father's father thought it. Well, you know, man, bitches just be cray, you know what I'm saying? Does she have a lack of introspective awareness? Is it some strange, gender-ingrained compulsion to hide her sexual strategy accommodated by the all-too-hilarious-yet-nefarious rationalization hamster? Probably both. Who really knows? Do fish have hamsters for brains? Apparently they do. Which would explain the selective memory. What I know is this. A woman, especially a young, attractive one, is like a fish. A tasty tuna. A fish who, if it could talk, would say, I hate fishermen who use nets, assholes. I much prefer the reasonable pole and line fishermen, nice guys. There's one thing she doesn't realize, though, because she's never tried to catch fish herself. All the fishermen with a pole and line are up against fishermen that swoop up schools of fish in great big nets. And because of that, they're lucky if they ever catch anything. The Pareto Principle, aka 80-20 rule. In spite of this, the fish insists that regardless of trying to obtain an effective outcome, pole and line fishing is the way forward for a wayward fisherman. Why? Because nets may work on some fish, but not all fish. Real fishermen don't use nets. And my personal favorite. Speaking as a fish, I don't like fishermen with nets. They have no respect for fish. One day, out on the raft with nothing but his right hand, a lot of fish swimming by, and a solitary pole in line that hasn't caught a bite since Charlie Sheen was on Two and a Half Men, the unsuccessful fisherman begins to angrily complain aloud about his lack of success. He starts wondering if there's something wrong with the fish, or if he just needs to get better at fishing. Of course, the fish become very startled when they hear the angry fisherman. They're worried he may fuck up the ocean by dumping actual mercury into it. So they pretend to give a fuck, feigning concern for the fisherman's upset. When really, they just want to make sure he doesn't become a maritime Elliot Roger. Apprehensive and a little indignant, a fish jumps out of the water and onto the solitary fisherman's raft. He thinks fortune has smiled graciously upon him, but he quickly realizes his hope is in vain, as it becomes apparent that in the absence of anything short of a hook in the gullet, said fish doesn't intend to make herself at home. She's just going to give an unhelpful, holier-than-thou speech full of platitudes and empty, asinine bigotry before she fucks off back into the ocean to meet the tangly embrace of another man's net. What was the speech the fish gave you to ponder? Don't worry, gentle fisherman. If you use a pole and line enough, you will eventually catch that one fish that you always wanted. You don't need to try out lots of different fish, or even catch many to be a good fisherman. 
a real fisherman is happy when he finally happens upon that one special fish. Then, ironically, she gives him a stare, bats her eyelids as if she's a catch, but on contraire, she's not his catch. I'm sure the right fish will come along one day, she exclaims condescendingly. So what is a naive pole and line fisherman to do? He, like many fishermen before him, disadvantaged by the absence of any veteran fisherman to show him the ropes, keeps retardedly fishing with his pole and line until eventually catching a fish that was rejected by one of the net-using fishermen. Of course, a fish caught by a net fisherman has to be kicked off, said fisherman ship. It doesn't swim away of its own accord. In fact, it'll often protest to said fisherman, You'll regret putting me back in the ocean. You'll never find a fish as great as I am. A pole and line fisherman wonders why a fisherman, either net or pole, would even dream of throwing a fish off his ship. But that's because Mr. Pole and Line is always thirsty and hungry, never full. Something the fish won't tell you is that no fish has ever in the history of fishing been caught by a net fisherman only to volunteer a transfer over to the ship or raft of the fisherman with a pole and line. All the guys who fish with poles, nice guys, are in a constant state of scarcity because they only get a single fish a year or decade, if even that. So when a rejected fish flaps her way onto his deck, he is grateful for the scraps that have been divinely bestowed upon him. Oh, peace be upon Dagon, god of fish! The guys who fish with nets, assholes, are in a state of abundance because they've got wet fish coming out the ass. They wake up and fish, wondering what the stench is only to realize their ship has turned into something of a fish colony, a harem. Then it strikes them they're in a fishy kind of daze. In fact, sometimes they wonder if some of their fish are beginning to rot and ponder chucking some back into the sea to catch a fresh batch. Their ship is so well built and their methods so well developed that their ship is the envy of the ocean. In fact, some fishermen have so many fish that they don't even need to cast their nets anymore. Ocean fish smell the other fish on his ship, reselection, and jealous of his big, beautiful ship, they all jump on uninvited, desperate to please the fishermen. So why do fish say they prefer poles, when realistically as a fisherman, nets are the way to go? One of the main reasons she says this shit is because all her friends and family, polite society, adhere to the tenets of Greenpeace, feminism. They believe in deep-sea conservation, and swimming willingly into the embrace of nets is no way conducive to the facilitation of sustainable fishing. It is because of this, her reputation depends on voicing a preference for pole <laughs> rather than nets. She could never admit to Greenpeace that secretly. The thought of getting swooped up by a big, bad, environmentally unfriendly net gets her gills giddy. Her whole involvement in Greenpeace is nothing but the duplicitous sham. But she's regurgitated the party line for so long, she can't see past it. No fish is bigger than the boat. If a fish ever gets too big for your boat, physically or psychologically, then you know what to do. Throw it back in the water, because there are plenty more fish in the sea. Stay frosty. Part 3. Miscellaneous Notes The Shit Test Encyclopedia Number 1. Introduction Many people seem to think that shit testing is a social device unique to women. 
whereby a form of social test is employed to determine the social fitness of a male in order to discern if he is a viable sexual option or not. Now, whilst this isn't wrong per se, it is an incredibly limited and rudimentary view of shit testing. Shit tests are a basic yet vitally important part of understanding and applying the red pill philosophy to your life. Even if you don't agree with red pill philosophy, shit tests still affect you. As a basic social dynamic, shit tests are something so incredibly inextricable that you're going to want to be able to identify and quash them as a matter of due course. Now, without further ado, let us begin. Number two, what are shit tests and what purpose do they serve? Why are they called shit tests? Well, when somebody gives you shit and fucks with your head to see how you will react, what you are experiencing is typically a series of shit tests. Everyone has been shit tested, gets shit tested, and will continue to be shit tested. It's an unavoidable part of human interaction. We use shit tests to make value judgments about people. Likewise, they can be used to determine how people cope under pressure. The underlying mechanism of shit tests is to test your mettle. Hence the name is not only fitting, but likewise accurate. Shit tests don't always have to be questions. They can be blanket assertions that are accusatory or provocative in nature. Such assertions are designed to elicit an emotional response from you, pushing you into a state of reactivity and causing you to reveal information about yourself. Okay, I get that. But why not just ask me what you want to know rather than play these silly games? The ignorant who have already passed judgment on the topic this essay covers have undoubtedly already thought this. Humans have a propensity to lie and tell people what they think they want to hear. This is especially true of women and the effeminate men who emulate them. Both are consensus-seeking creatures who crave the approval of the group above all else. This goes some way to explaining why women, regardless of social standing, indulge in vapid social pleasantries that men of substance have neither the time nor inclination for. They are anti-confrontational to the most sublime degree, but nevertheless I digress. On the immediately observable superficial level, the majority of people are concealing their true identity. Thus, in order to make accurate deductions about the personalities around us, we challenge one another subtextually and draw conclusions about what the other person is really like when gauging their responses. Shit tests can be blatant or they can be covert. How they manifest depends upon the intent and personality of the individual employing the test. The sum potential combination of differing shit test scenarios is so vast that I cannot possibly give an example of each and every possible outcome in this article. Therefore, I shall instead bestow you with the knowledge necessary to refine your own analytical capabilities so that you may act accordingly when you find yourself being shit-tested. People have a tendency to exaggerate their own strengths and project a false, heightened image of themselves. If you've ever been on Facebook, you will have seen this firsthand. These people are not showing you who they really are or what they're really worth. Instead, they're showing you their life's highlights and leading you to believe that this is how they live all the time, that they're just that awesome. They want you to believe their social value is higher than it really is. Well, surprise, surprise, people don't just do this on Facebook. They do this in real life, too. Those who consider themselves a bullshit-free zone, e.g. masculine men will ball bust, read shit test your ass a new one, quite relentlessly to determine just how much of a man you are. If you are an effeminate or timid man, you will feel bullied rather than challenged. 
and this tells the group everything they need to know about you. You will fail to understand that what you are experiencing is a social initiation ritual that all men must go through when they are new to a male-dominated group. You will be relentlessly ridiculed to determine what you're like and where you belong in the pecking order. If you are too reactive, you will be rejected and exiled from the group, or relegated to the bottom position as the emotional punching bag everyone ridicules for cheap laughs. To avoid finding yourself condemned to such a fate, you must demonstrate you can spar verbally without taking too much to heart. Shit tests are used to determine your frame. Frame is a concept which essentially means composure and self-control. If you need a visual metaphor, imagine you are a work of art on a gallery wall. You are kept straight and presentable by the frame you are kept in. If the frame was taken away, your picture would fold and you would fall to the floor. In the physical sense of the metaphor, your canvas folds and you, the picture, fall to the floor bent out of shape. Psychologically and symbolically, folding means you have lost control and given up in the way that a player folds when they surrender in a game of poker. If you can keep composure, seem unfazed, and or assert your boundaries despite a shit test, generally speaking, you will be considered to have passed the shit test. If you get upset, offended, doubt yourself, or show weakness in any discernible way when shit tested, it will be generally considered that you failed the test. I will summarize this section of the article with a valuable conclusion. Whilst passing shit tests psychologically raises your perceived social value, failing shit tests psychologically lowers your perceived social value. Pass people's shit tests to garner popularity and social success. Fail them, and you will become an ostracized and unconfident outcast. Number three, shit tests and game. If a pretty girl says, I bet you say that to all the girls, a run-of-the-mill standard shit test, and you stand there with your jaw ajar, speechless in what to say, you have just failed her shit test. Your silence is not useful because she can see you are not willfully ignoring her, you're just stuck for what to say, and your mental slowness is blatant. This is a huge faux pas that communicates stark social incompetency. An example of passing her shit test? The infamous agree and amplify technique. If you were to say, yeah, but normally I forget their faces. And she follows up with, so what, you're saying you won't forget mine? Another shit test. And you reply with another agree and amplify, not if you give me a reason not to, in a charismatic tone, then you've effectively used game to come out victorious in that round of testing. You cannot falter in the midst of a shit test. Sometimes they come out of nowhere, completely unexpected, and catch you by surprise which is why being good at conversational improvisation and word association are fundamental toolboxes to being able to destroy any shit test that may come your way. If you are abstract or metaphorical in your thinking and verbal skills, you will have a lot of fun with shit tests. Men with subpar wit and verbal skills tend to struggle with shit tests. As an aside to men who fall into this category, I suggest you watch more stand-up comedy to develop your wit, and speak more with people to improve your conversational ability. If you get good at speaking shit, which is essentially freestyle improvisational conversation based upon nothing more than word association, observation, and mockery, you will find passing shit tests to be not only easy, but likewise immensely enjoyable. Shit tests can be passed in a multitude of ways. So even when passing, it's not strictly a matter of whether you passed or not, but just as important is how you passed. 
For example, people with a good sense of humor tend to accept negative labels and make jokes out of them. We call this agree and amplify. Mentally violent people tend to quickly find a flaw in the person attacking them and deflect by associating the shit test with a weakness perceived in the original tester, thus attempting to humiliate them. We call that a pressure flip. Number three, A. Shit test passed and shit test failed. An example. I'll give you an example of a common shit test women use. For the sake of the example, let's pretend your name is Tom. Haha, <laughs> Tom is one of those player guys. You can tell just by looking at him. It will sound like a complaint, but it isn't. It's a shit test, and she wants to see how you respond to her bullshit. She is conjuring up inane, accusatory nonsense purely to incite a response and determine your level of confidence. After she says this, she will look at you to gauge your body language and get a better read on your frame. Strong response. Sounds like you've got an eye for talent. Body language-wise, give her strong, I'm gonna fuck you till I split you like the Grand Canyon eyes. Or be aloof and distant as if to suggest her test is pathetic. Shit test passed. Vagina's beginning to moisten. Weak response. I would never dream of stringing a girl along. And then you start idiotically justifying how you're not like that. Eyes widening, palms are sweaty, wishing you were at home with your mom's spaghetti. Shit test failed. She's drying up. I will make a point of saying here that whilst women will deliberately and consciously shit test you, much of it is entirely subconscious. They do it, but they're not aware why or even when they do it for the most part. Women who read this blog are probably not indicative of that assessment, as naturally my literature will have elevated their self-awareness beyond that of the average female. Number three, B. Examples. Standard shit tests women use. Aw, are you upset? Translation. Are you a beta? Ignore it or agree and amplify. Yeah, I'm going to go home and watch Titanic now. You're such a player, aren't you? Translation. Are you alpha? Ignore it. Be mysterious, vague. Maybe. Come find out. Or agree and amplify. You don't know the half of it. Buy me a drink. Translation. Are you a beta? Compliance test. If you buy her shit, you're a chump. The correct response is, no, you buy me a drink. You communicate you're more valuable than she is. Only lower value men buy drinks for random women they don't know. Unless you're pre-selected out the ass, e.g. you own the club, in that case you can buy shots for homeless men and nobody gives a fuck. The boss man gets a pass for doing weird and insane shit that would see lesser men condemned. I have a boyfriend. Translation. I have Schrodinger's boyfriend. Demonstrate to me your high value and I'll fuck you regardless. It is hilarious when they say this. What boyfriend, your imaginary one? Then laugh in her face. Sounds like you're shit out of luck. I'm gonna have to fuck your friend instead. Feel free to watch. Always be prepared to get slapped when you're running this kind of obnoxious asshole game. Don't say I didn't warn you. Consider the slap a sign she cares. I don't date short guys. Translation. You look like a beta because you're not physically imposing. Of course, only guys who aren't considered tall by the cultural standard of the country they are in are subject to this shit test. 
The correct response is to agree and amplify. Yeah, I'm a fucking dwarf even in my heels. There is nothing worse than a short guy who is all messed up over his lack of height and gets insecure at the first mention of it. Women will shit test you on this if you are short or even average height. You have to seem like you don't give a shit about the fact you're not considered tall. If you get upset, she'll think you're weak because your jimmies were so easily rustled. Be unreactive. No fucks should be given. You can't change your height, so you have to learn to accept it. Do you believe in love at first sight? Translation. Are you a beta? The answer to this is always no. Or if you're bold and don't give a shit about being slapped and want to escalate with tension, say this. I didn't. But then I saw your titties on the way over and I've been having deep philosophical reconsiderations ever since. Can we be just friends? Translation. I think you are a beta that should do my bidding. The answer to this is almost always no. Unless, of course, you don't want to bang the chick, she's a no-go, and for whatever reason you think she'd be cool to have around. How many girls have you slept with? Translation. Do you get laid a lot, or are you a sex-starved beta? Saying you have not slept with many girls communicates low value. Exaggerate your number if it's low. If it's high, give any old number assuming you've kept track. Fail-safe responses. I've lost count. What, today? Not many. Pick a number, any number. Do you have a girlfriend? Translation. Are you a beta? Can you get laid? The correct answer is always yes. It increases your pre-selection. Women love poaching men from other women. They essentially find whatever is in demand to be attractive. That's what we refer to as pre-selection. Ways to pass this test. She told me not to tell anyone. We're not Facebook official. I don't cuddle her after sex, so... No? I bet you have a girlfriend. Translation. I want to fuck you, but I don't know if other women find you hot. More overt variant of the above, which assumes you're pre-selected, indicating a higher level of interest. Again, even if you don't have a girlfriend, you should say you do, or otherwise indicate that you do to increase your perceived pre-selection. Hold my bag for me. Or, will you go and get me a coffee? Substitute bag, coffee for whatever. Translation. Are you a complicit beta that will do what I tell you to do? This is a compliance test wrapped up in a power play to see if you are wrapped around her little finger. Some variation of no or hold, get it yourself does well. Sneer whilst you say it for bonus points. As you may have noticed from the repertoire of women's bog-standard run-of-the-mill tests, they are incredibly fixated on discerning whether or not you are a beta, guy who doesn't get laid much, if at all. If in doubt, err towards being an asshole. Being identified as a beta dries up panties quicker than you can boil an egg in a Sahara sauna. If you show boldness and exude a I-will-mockingly-bullshit-you kind of attitude, you'll do just fine. Number four. Shit test variation and severity. You have three separate themes that shit tests fall under. Dominance, compliance, fitness. A dominant shit test is used to determine how mentally tough you are. E.g., do you always whine like a bitch? A compliant shit test is used to determine how much influence a person has over you. E.g., get me a coffee. 
A fitness shit test is used to determine your social skills or sense of humor. E.g., you look hilarious when you're crying. Dominance is an underlying theme behind all shit tests. However, dominance has its own classification, too. Fitness tests are normally also dominance tests, but a dominance test can be employed purely to test or wrestle for dominance and have no humor-determining component attached to it. A fitness test merely wants to determine your ability to banter and endure a verbal onslaught. Normally, if you fail at fitness tests, the tester won't want much to do with you, socially speaking. In light of this, compliance shit tests and fitness shit tests share some overlap with dominant shit tests. Consider them more specific subcategories of dominance. As a rule of thumb, the more messed up the individual is, the higher the stakes are. Likewise, the higher value the person you're dealing with, the more severely you will be shit tested. E.g., CEOs will shit test harder and more frequently than office assistants. Women with daddy issues will shit test more than women who had stable relationships with their fathers. BPD women will never stop shit testing. In a further example, interviews are essentially a collection of shit tests. Going for a job, you're going to get shit tested to see if you're worth employing. Those weird questions you get asked, such as, if you had any kind of superpower, what would it be and why? And name your biggest weakness are shit tests designed to directly determine the strength of your character, creative intelligence, and confidence. It's not only what you respond with that matters, but likewise how quickly and in what manner. Are you confident dominant or unconfident submissive? The name your biggest weakness shit test seems to be a question that continuously protrudes and persists with employers nowadays. It's as if, rather perversely, they want to subtly neg you and see how you can handle it to determine how you deal with ego violation. I sincerely doubt they care much for your introspective capacity. In Generation Narcissist, millennials, but growingly their Generation X parents too, this of course leads to a lot of confusion as well as butthurt. I don't know. And I don't even... But mommy and daddy told me I was a special snowflake. As a freebie, my response to this shit test is, I'm so egotistical, I don't even know what my weaknesses are, and find introspection difficult. So I guess being blind to my own faults would be my weakness. Now, ironically, that statement is introspective, humble, and paradoxical. So the answer is something of a head fuck. However, most times I have used it in the past, it has been accepted as a valid answer. Be warned, however, particularly shrewd or Machiavellian recruiters will probably see this as a red flag. If your instincts tell you the recruiter is highly Machiavellian, ditch this tactic and admit to something asinine such as your constant battle with timekeeping. These people are seeking an honest admission imperfection, not the smart-ass narcissistic shit I recommended up there. Bear in mind, I use long words and elaborate metaphors as part of my linguistic register in real life. It's natural to me. Using canned lines is bad, because it means you lack natural game and need to borrow from another man's wit. If you are not so wordy, it will look weird if you are not congruently wordy, but instead only wordy in the passing of a specific shit test, because it is a line you have read on here or somewhere else. This will arouse suspicion that you have some sort of script pre-prepared because your answer seems out of place in relation with how you would normally talk. So if you don't talk as elaborately as I, you can shorten it to, I don't know what my weaknesses are. Is that a weakness? At this point, they may try to lead you to confess a weakness about yourself, 
Treat it like a police interrogation where they try to get you to admit you committed a crime, which in this context is equivocally admit that you have a flaw. When you say you don't know your weaknesses, they will ask you a series of questions under the guise of helping you, but in actual fact, these are all overt shit tests posing as honest questions. Are you a bad timekeeper? No. Do you suffer from confidence-related issues? No. Do you have problems motivating yourself? No. Why would you tell an employer that you're low confidence, poorly motivated, and never arrive on time even if it were true? You want to get an employment contract after all. Are they really going to hire you with the knowledge that you're a bad bet? If you're dumb enough to fall for these shit tests, you lack the basic social competency to get yourself a job. It amazes me how self-detrimentally honest people can be when they're subject to even a tiny amount of social pressure from a position of authority. Likewise, going out on a date with a woman is a collection of shit tests to see if you're worth having sex with. Being in a police interrogation room is a collection of shit tests. Being heckled by members of the audience as a comedian is a collection of shit tests. And it goes on and on and on. Shit tests are an inescapable and recurring element of life. So you better get good at handling them. Number 4A. Basic shit tests. Frame probing and wordplay. When most people think of shit tests, they're thinking of basic tests designed to probe your frame, mental stability, congruency, and strength, via wordplay. Basic shit tests normally manifest as insincere questions. An example would be something like, do you always talk to people like that? They can be played off as a genuine question into the nature of your character. However, its true intent is to discern how you cope with being put on the spot. Basic shit tests usually rely on the element of surprise to catch you unaware. An improvised basic shit test is spawned out of a play on words or some other similar facet of word association. The shit tester will take a statement of yours and ask an associated question, or make a statement, which purposely distorts its meaning in a somewhat hostile manner. Here are some examples. You. I don't trust women. Them. Is that because you find women intimidating? You. I like cookies. Them. I'll get you a gastric band for Christmas then. Number 4B. Advanced level shit tests. Psychological games. Advanced level shit tests are subtle, but retain plausible deniability. Rather than directly questioning you or challenging you in an overt verbal manner, typically they will opt to challenge you in a covert non-verbal manner, inspiring jealousy by excluding someone who would typically otherwise be included in something is a shit test. It's a test to see if you care enough to voice your concern or challenge those who would otherwise opt to exclude you. Naturally, Seeming unfazed and outcome-independent regardless of your contempt for said shit test is the optimum way to handle things. When people shit test you and it's a lose-lose situation, opt to ignore them. You only win by not playing. For example, if someone insults you publicly to try to stir up drama, and it is assumed they will benefit from such controversy, your only recourse is to deprive them of the theatrical controversy which they seek. I've found that the more successful I've become within the various realms of my life, the more I've had other socially dominant men try to test my mettle by flagrantly disrespecting me just to see what I'll do about it. It can be subtle and implied, or overt and explicit. Either way, not playing is off the only winning move in such a situation. 
Even if you can come out on top in a battle of wits, you sink a lot of your precious time combating nonsense that you gain nothing from. When you're powerful, other people see opportunities in attempting to bring you down a notch or two. Some people will try to get you to react to your inanity merely so they can bolster their reputation by latching onto yours. It is for this reason that the art of silence, ignoring your enemies overtly, is a necessary skill set that all men looking to preserve their accumulated power should master and employ with regularity. It's simple. When you feel someone provoking a response from your ego, interject your emotions with the question, is there a way for me to benefit from responding to this? If the answer is no, replying is pointless. Let reason override emotion. Cultivate this skill by refining your self-discipline. Such shit tests are typically obvious in their intent to put you on the defense. Once you get caught in a web of shit testing, you will often find yourself justifying your choices and explaining your actions. This lowers your social value, wins you no respect, and digs an even deeper hole. Non-Machiavellian logic fails in handling shit tests. People do not respect rationality. They respect only indications of high status. Explaining yourself, no matter how rational your explanation is, will be perceived as a demonstration of low status. Do not justify yourself. If you find yourself explaining yourself in the midst of an argument or theatrical device, you're losing, and would be far better off just immediately exiting stage instead. At the advanced level, you find that there is a lot of blame shifting. Typically in discussion, the shit tester will try to convince you that you are somehow responsible for any flaws or weaknesses of theirs. Women particularly seem to habitually blame shift. It's not only a self-defense mechanism to diffuse feelings of inferiority or guilt, but it also acts as a shit test, because if you accept the blame, you will be seen less favorably. You. Come on, you need to pull your weight around here. Them. If I'm lazy, it's because I'm following the stellar example you have set. Now, of course, the dialogue above could be a perfectly healthy part of banter, but bear in mind that an inability to banter has the same effect as failing a shit test within a serious context. Whether pleasurable or not, banter is simply shit testing for the sake of mental stimulation. And like more serious shit testing, you still need to be able to respond aptly. If your ability to handle shit tests is poor, go online and watch how comedians deal with hecklers. Number 4C. Nuclear shit tests. A nuclear shit test, colloquially referred to as going nuclear or the nuclear option, is when someone does something which violates conventional social boundaries in order to see how you will react. These are a step up from advanced level shit tests, being more extreme in nature, usually bordering on psychological or emotional abuse. They can be covert, removing all the money from your bank account and feigning ignorance to see how you deal without money or overt, somebody taking a bite out of your food and then staring at you in the eye. Nuclear shit tests are designed to test your reaction not by probing your psyche with words, but by probing your psyche with actions that would typically be expected to offend, hurt, disrespect, etc. Say you're with a girl, and you've hooked up a few times. She's a plate, pushing for commitment, but you haven't given in to her demands. You're both out at the club, and she starts grinding on another guy. She's doing this to make you jealous in an attempt to force your hand. She's using dread game and trying to get you to commit to her by inspiring competition anxiety within you. Dread game when used by women is a nuclear shit test. 
how do you pass this shit test? Go talk to other girls. When inevitably comes up later, she was grinding, respond with, that's cool. It signifies you don't care in a positive manner. Or, you can do what you like, etc. Realize she did what she did for your benefit, to test you. It's all about you. If you weren't there to see it, she wouldn't have used another man as an instrument to manipulate you into giving her an offer of exclusivity. Number five, passing shit tests. There are many mechanisms which one can employ to pass a shit test. Passing a shit test means you have responded to the test in a way that either neutralizes the tester's challenge or causes them to perceive you as confident, dominant, and valued. Before we begin, a note on Agree and Amplify. Agree and Amplify seems to be the shit test buster of choice for most people. Agree and Amplify is really good for making jokes, but if used inappropriately, e.g. in the presence of potential violence, it could make things worse by actually escalating instead of diffusing things. If a violent man walked up to you and said, Do you want me to fuck you up? This is a shit test, but he will do it if you fail. And you agree and amplify on him. Yes, in the ass, please. Instead of being impressed by your wit, he's likely to respond, So you don't think I'm serious? Let me show you how serious I am. Followed by an attempt to beat the hell out of you. Be aware that not all shit test busters will work in every scenario. You have to use your common sense, calibrate to the situation, and determine what shit test solving method should be utilized based upon the context. Now let's say you approached a woman and began the conversation with an improvised opener, and she replies, I bet you use that line on all the girls. Here are the various ways in which you could pass your shit test. They are plentiful. Agree and amplify is the usage of the logical fallacy reductio ad absurdum, Latin for reduce to absurdity. What you do is you take someone's criticism and nonchalantly imply it is absurd by exacerbating what they have said. So in relation to the shit test at the beginning of this section, yeah, I literally wake up in the morning covered in bitches, it's that effective. It is this device which is the bread and butter of Rollo's theory of amused mastery. Disagree and amplify is the same as agree and amplify, except you disagree rather than agree with the premise. So, in relation to the shit test at the beginning of this section, no, you're the first girl I've ever spoken to. I used to be a mute. A pressure flip is where you reverse the social pressure put on you back onto the originator of the social pressure. So, in relation to the shit test at the beginning of this section, I bet you think everything's a line because you've got trust issues. Agree and pressure flip is the same as a pressure flip, except you precede the flip with agreement. So in relation to the shit test at the beginning of this section, yeah, I do. I'm sorry, do you think you were special or something? Disagree and pressure flip is the same as a pressure flip, except you precede the flip with disagreement. So in relation to the shit test at the beginning of this section, nah, you're too ugly for me to be dropping lines on. Ignore. Provide no acknowledgement of the shit test by ignoring it. This is a bad choice when you've just met someone, but once your reputation and or superiority has been established, it is a great way of nonchalantly invalidating the importance of an inquiry. It implies, what you said isn't even worth addressing. This is best used on people who are lower in the pecking order than you are, or as a response to the manifestation of stupidity. If someone asked you if you'd like to eat your own excrement, you could have a joke and agree and amplify into something about a sewer using your keen knowledge of word association and semantic fields. Or rather simply, you could ignore the inanity of the question. 
The choice of style is yours to make and will be contingent on your mood, your relative social positions in relation to one another, and what you suspect the shit tester's intent is. Misdirect. Change the topic of conversation to something else. This invalidates the inquiry by providing no acknowledgement of it. In this sense, it's similar to ignoring a shit test. There is a chance, however, that the tester will become annoyed by your invalidation and will thus retest you until you pass with a more effective method. This works best on people with attention span issues, as they will often forget how they were testing you once distracted. And if they ask you what they were saying, you can simply feign ignorance, invalidating their test and condemning it to beyond the grasp of their engrams. In relation to the shit test at the beginning of this section, have you farted? It stinks. Ridicule reframe. This is major asshole game, or what I personally refer to as Patrice O'Neill game. You use this kind of game to bring incredibly narcissistic and angry women off the ego pedestal. Don't use this on timid, sheltered women if you ever want to sleep with them. They'll get too intimidated to act upon their attraction. Ridicule reframes are particularly helpful in bantering with other guys, who relish in the verbal violence and ensuing laughter it can inspire. In relation to the shit test at the beginning of this section, I bet you're single because your face looks like a 9-11 crash site. Pseudo-gaslight. This one's really simple. You pretend you have no idea what the person shit-testing you is talking about, and accuse them of making things up. So in relation to the shit test at the beginning of this section, what line? Got an active imagination, have we? Number six, in closing. I wanted to include dark triad shit-tests in here to complete the compendium of shit-test-related information. However, I feel that as the dark triad portion of the site operates as a standalone section, having its own article would make for more optimized archiving and searching, should someone specifically want to look up how dark triad individuals shit-test people. Not only that, but due to its intricacy, this piece has become far longer than I had originally intended, and I do not wish to be intentionally terse in my discussion of dark triad shit-tests just to keep the word length down. Dark triad shit-tests will be the topic of a future article. This piece has broken down just some of the games that people play, and given you a basic understanding of how to be socially resilient. With practice, you will find yourself recognizing the subliminal social games others are playing, and will learn how to respond and initiate them yourself. How to Stop Feeling Tired Energy is the key to creativity. Energy is the key to life. William Shatner Number one, introduction. In this piece, I will depart from my usual lofty prose to bring you something less abstract and more practical. Even though I lean toward the more literary, strategic, and theoretical side of things most of the time, I think it's important to write about practical things in a simple manner on occasion. After all, I'm not just here to embellish my own love of wordsmithing, but likewise to help people by sharing what I've learned from my experiences and observations. Now on that note, Energy optimization is of great importance to me. I'm not naturally high energy, but I'm naturally pretty smart. And I'll tell you this. High energy guys with shit for brains will kill it more in life than low energy smart guys ever will. Energy is king. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. A high energy dumbass will outperform a low energy genius every time without fail. Not only will his peak in any one scenario be higher, but his ability to endure will be greater. Without energy, you just can't get shit done. 
When Genius Boy wants to lay back in his chair and do fuck all, Dumbo the Elephant wants to zoom around town completing errands. It is energy and energy alone that underpins every single human's ability to do anything. And so there should be nothing, absolutely nothing, that is more important for you to get under control than this. If you're not a high-energy person and you're reading this, your objective should be to change this. Firstly, identify why and how you're low energy. Then engage in lifestyle changes and or therapeutic treatments to fix the problem. This is your true route to a better life, not binge-reading self-improvement material. Self-improvement material can't give you energy. It can only tell you what to do, assuming you actually have the energy to follow its advice. Being low energy is not an acceptable state of living. It's normal to average people, because average people are accustomed to being in poor health. But if you read I Am, you are obviously someone with zero interest in being average and will do whatever it takes to win at life. It doesn't matter how capable you think you are, how smart, how talented, how whatever. As a smart man who's had to deal with far too much fatigue throughout his life, I can tell you this. Smart men are smarter when they're not fatigued. Having sharp, effortless focus and not having to battle brain fog not only improves your performance, but rids you of the emotional frustration that comes with brain fog. So however smart you think you are in your constant state of tiredness, yeah, you'd be smarter if you weren't tired all the time. If you're not a high-energy person, you will never reach your potential. You will find it hard to be motivated, social, and productive. Nobody who is ambitious wants this for themselves. It's not because you suck. It's not because you're lazy or some other garbage where people with better physiology due to genetics or drug consumption look down on you for being less productive than them. It's because your hormonal profile sucks. It's easy to kill it at life when your hormones rock, which is why a lot of winners are into blood panel monitoring and hormonal optimization. If you're tired all the time, your hormones suck, and it's holding you back. Period. A lot of people who don't achieve much and are deemed lazy may actually be very mentally ambitious and driven. But if they don't have the energy to act on their ambitions, then for all intent and purpose, the world thinks you're a loser. It doesn't care you're tired. It just wants results. Wanting to produce results isn't enough. You need to be actually able to produce them. It doesn't matter if you're a goddamn rocket ship. If you have no rocket fuel, how are you getting to Mars? You're not. It's easy for a high-energy person with good hormones to tell a low-energy person with bad hormones to work harder, that they need to get out of their head, that it's their fault and theirs alone, they suck, and blah blah. I see egotistical chest-beating fucks talking like this all the time. Nonetheless, my objective is not to bitch for the entirety of this article. It's to help. I believe this opening rant is necessary because if you believe you suck innately and don't realize it's a fixable biological problem that is to blame, there's no hope for you. Once you recognize the world is unfair and that the reason you're sucking at life stems from subpar health, you can find a way to do something about it. And that, my friends, is the scope of this article. Number two, energy and social skills. Many lethargic people who think they have bad social skills actually do not. It's simply their tiredness which prevents them from being as present and socially powerful as they would be if they were hormonally optimized and had high energy levels. Children tend to be very social because they're very energetic. The elderly, less so because they're not. One thing you'll notice about popular people 
is they all tend to have very high energy. Low energy people can't bring the hype because they're always tired. And if your energy is really low, you may not even have it in you to socialize. Fatigue induces involuntary introversion. And even should you make the effort to socialize whilst fatigued, your ability to connect with others and have a rich interaction will be subpar. If you are suffering or have suffered from fatigue for a long time, don't identify with it. That's not who you are. Who you really are, your true self, is being suppressed by suboptimal health, and it's time to do something about it. Number three, identifying the cause. Those of you who don't like needles, that's going to be most of you, aren't going to like hearing this. But if you're tired all the time, you're going to need to get blood tests done to determine what's wrong with you. I believe the most common reasons for low energy are as follows. Untreated low testosterone. Untreated hypothyroidism. Untreated diabetes. Lack of vitamin D3. Lack of B vitamins. Now, there are plenty of other conditions and mineral deficiencies that can cause fatigue, and I more than suspect people to discuss these in the comments. However, I can't cover everything in one article. So, I've picked the five health issues I believe are the most common causes of fatigue in men. You can start off by simply buying vitamin D3 and a decent vitamin B complex and seeing if that solves your fatigue problems. If it does, great. You can avoid getting blood tests done to check your hormones because you're not tired anymore. Honestly, though, I don't recommend this. It's smart to keep your own health records and archive them over time to spot trends. The younger you are when you start doing this, the better. So say you want to get checked for these things. What blood test should you order? Should you trust your doctor to know what to order on your behalf because you told him you suspect you may have a certain ailment? No. You're a man, and your doctor doesn't give a damn about you. You find out exactly what to test for yourself. You don't waste time convincing a doctor you need certain tests done. You pay a lab directly out of pocket to get it done hassle-free. For example, if you go to your doc and say, Hey doc, I think I have low testosterone. Guess what the idiot's most likely to do, assuming he even tests you at all? He'll just order a testosterone test, nothing else. He will, quite literally, just have your total testosterone checked, which by itself is an utterly useless metric because it tells you nothing about the other hormones and proteins that interact with and affect your testosterone. Your doctor not only makes you wait longer to see your result than if you'd ordered the test yourself, but when you get your result back, he'll tell you you're fine without ever letting you see the numbers. This is suboptimal care. In fact, it's damn right negligent and unprofessional, but such is the state of modern medical practice. I'm not being dramatic. This experience reflects that of many men who have gone to see their GPs concerned with their health, only to be turned away without proper testing or adequate treatment. As a man, you have to look out for your own health and do your own research. Nobody really cares about you, least of all the medical profession. Okay, I am, you've gone off topic in your disdain for the medical profession. If I suspect I have low testosterone, what blood test should I order? Total testosterone. Self-explanatory. This is the total amount of testosterone circulating in your blood. Higher is better. SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin. This is a protein that binds heavily to your testosterone, making it unavailable to your tissues for general use. Lower is better. Albumin, this is essentially a weaker form of SHBG. It's a protein that binds loosely to your testosterone. Lower is better. Estrogen, estradiol. Lower is better. As a side note, 
This is spelled estrogen, O-E-S-T-R-O-G-E-N, estradiol, O-E-S-T-R-A-D-I-O-L in the UK. Alternate spellings can be confusing. This is worth noting to avoid potential confusion. E1 is estrone, E2 is estradiol. You're interested in E2. Prolactin. This is the hormone responsible for lactation. In high amounts, it reduces natural testosterone production. Lower is better. SHBG and albumin are used to determine your free testosterone. Your free testosterone is distinct from your total testosterone in so much as your total testosterone is the sum of what exists in your body at any one point. But your free testosterone is what's available to your body for your use, and thus well-being. Bound testosterone is inactive and unable to give you any benefit. You can have the highest testosterone in the world, but if it's all bound up, you'll get no benefit from it and still suffer from the lethargy typical of low testosterone. I know of one gentleman who had a natural total testosterone level of 900 nanograms per deciliter, which is 31 nanomoles per liter, which is high testosterone, but his SHBG was at around 70 nanomoles per liter. So he never had any energy, despite being high T. He had low free T. Yes, if you're high T but have low free T, you are, for all intent and purposes, low T. The range for free testosterone deemed normal is 1.5 to 3% of your total testosterone. Naturally, higher is better. If your free testosterone is 1.5% of your total testosterone or lower, this is undoubtedly the if not a, cause of your fatigue. You don't necessarily need to have low testosterone to suffer from low free testosterone. Whether you have low T or low free T, the presence of either will cause fatigue. Total testosterone should, in my opinion, be no lower than 700 nanograms per deciliter, which is around 24 nanomoles per liter. Lower than that is only bad. You won't be Superman at this level, but you won't feel like crap either. Your physician will disagree with my opinion and say you're fine if you're in the 300 to 600 range, but this is bullshit. Elderly men in the 1980s had 600 plus as an average. But if a 20-year-old in 2017 is at 600 plus or even around 400, they'll tell him he's fine. What? How does that work? They keep revising the range for testosterone and sperm count down to lower and lower acceptable levels. 